1: What a world, what a life, what a day, Saturday, June 4, 2022. Sensational guest John Morse will get you fired up. He was the former state senate president taken out by a recall after he passed gun laws in the wake of Sandy Hook and the Aurora Theater Massacre. It was a shameful episode in Colorado history, but Senator Morse is undeterred. He is calling for an assault weapon ban and so am I. Wait till you hear the passion and the knowledge in this former police chief, paramedic, state senate president. This guy's a big deal. He's a CPA too. He's a great guest. So is Bob Marshall. Bob Marshall wants to be in the Colorado State House. He's running in C D forty three and he's had so many interesting experiences, including his recent trip to Ukraine, he's a lawyer. He's in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. And we talk about Uvalde. We talk about the big issues in Colorado and Trumpism, how to battle it. Dealing with dead children in an elementary school, it just blows our mind. Troubadour Dave Gunders has the right song on and on her way about lost healing, and how to pick up the pieces and move on after terrible events. John Morse gets it started, the passion in this man, as he talks about not voting for any more politicians, including Democrats, including Jared Polis, unless he calls for an assault weapon ban. Enjoy this special episode 99, Do-Gooders, featuring former State Senate President John Morse, and aspiring State House Representative Bob Marshall, followed by our troubadour, Enjoy. llc.com
0: now back to the Craig Silverman show
1: hello Senator Morse Craig Silverman how are you
2: sir so far so good how about you
1: I'm wonderful thanks a lot for coming on my podcast
2: my absolute pleasure
1: could you tell everybody about your background where you grew up and what line of work you went
2: into (laughs) sure so um, my father was in the military and we were assigned to Colorado Springs um, nine and a half years or so into my life. So I moved to Colorado Springs when I was nine, have been in Colorado since, um, studied accounting and finance, became a CPA, and then have, uh, worked my way through college on a paramedic ambulance, eventually went back to being a paramedic uh, for a couple of years here at Denver General, now Denver Health. Um, then I uh, left that and became, went back to Colorado Springs and became a police officer and served for nine years with the Colorado Springs Police Department as a police officer, detective, sergeant, um, and then was recruited to go be the number two in the Fountain Police Department, and about 18 months later, the chief that recruited me left, and so I became the fountain police chief, which I did for a couple of years. Um, so I was there a couple of years, not as the chief as the number two, and then a couple of years as the chief. And then, um, then I was recruited to run a nonprofit organization in Colorado Springs called Silver Key Senior Services, and it provided services to those over age 60 to, provide, uh, to allow them to live in their homes and independently for as long as possible. Uh, And from there, I was recruited to run for the state Senate, um, which I did and beat an incumbent and served most of two terms, um, seven years total. And 2013 was my last year. And in that year, we passed five gun safety related measures that all five of which infuriated the NRA. And so they bought the signatures and the election, and Angela Heron in Pueblo, and I were recalled in 2013. At the time, I was president of the Colorado State Senate, so it was quite a trophy for the NRA. Uh, And then after that, I opened my own CPA firm, and that's what I'm doing to this day.
1: And you are busy in the middle of a very successful CPA practice. I admire your tenacity and your service. And back in 1976 through 78, where were you? In the Springs,
2: Denver, where? So, 76 to 78, I was actually in Boulder. Um, I graduated from high school in 1976 and uh, spent two years in Boulder as a student at CU Boulder and then finished my undergraduate degree in Colorado Springs at uh, University of Colorado, Colorado Springs.
1: Well, see, I was 76 to 78 at Colorado College, the Colorado College in the heart of Colorado Springs. So,
3: <laughs>
1: and then I went to Boulder. So our paths are kind of similar wandering the front range, living Colorado Springs, Denver, and Boulder. Which one do you think is the prettiest?
2: So, that's a fascinating question. I mean, you know, Peak and Garden of the Gods, that overlook is just stunning and yet the flat irons you know if you get back a little ways i mean with your nose pressed right up to the flat irons it's not that great but back a little man you know that's drop dead gorgeous also and then denver has the mountains in the background and the city lights in the foreground and so it is a a mishmash of they're all beautiful But just yeah, in a little I, bit
1: of a different way. And from my deck, if yeah, I turn the right yeah. way, I can see the Flatirons and I can see Pike's Peak and the Vista. Yeah. But I might give it to Colorado Springs just because Pike's Peak, I mean, come on. It looms yeah. right over the Colorado College campus and it's just its own ecosystem, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it
2: is drop-dead gorgeous. There's no question. I mean, to this day in my living room and it's been in my office but now that I office from home kind of like the rest of the world Uh, so it was in my office as president of the Senate and as majority leader and then even as a CPA and now it's in my home living room but it's a picture taken from the police helicopter uh, at CSPD um, and it was taken by one of the captains when he was flying in the helicopter I mean I Flew in it a couple times myself, and the, you know, the view from the helicopter is just amazing. Both of the mountains and then of the city below, it's just a fascinating look. But to have that picture with Pikes Peak in the background, of course, and downtown Colorado Springs in the foreground. Yeah, it's, uh, this is the prettiest place in the country to live, I swear it is.
1: Well, there you go. Although Colorado Springs, for all its rich history, doesn't really have a downtown I guess a little bit <laughs> around the library. You got the homeless and that sort of thing, but I don't know. I'm worried about Denver's downtown. Where are you living these days, Denver, Colorado Springs, where?
2: Oh, I live in Denver and have, uh, frankly, since the recall. I mean, I moved to Denver two weeks after the recall election and started my CPA practice. Um, you know, three months later, once I got settled up here. So yeah, I've been in Denver ever since. Well,
1: welcome to my hometown. And I just wonder what you think of our downtown. I've worked there my whole professional career over four decades now, and I'm worried about downtown Denver. Are you down there much? or?
2: And, you know, I moved from downtown uh, just uh, six months ago, literally. Um, and you're right. It's it, you know, it, downtown Denver does kind of go through uh, boom and bust. And, I mean, when I was a paramedic for DG, that was before the Rockies Stadium, before the Rockies, so long before the Rockies Stadium. Sure. And so, you know, there was a whole bunch of that lower downtown that was quite seedy and, you know, lots of homeless people and things like that and lots of police calls and ambulance calls. And then it was redeveloped and it seemed to ebb for a little while, and now it does seem that it's back. And of course, you know, with all the other social unrest that's gone on too, you know, downtown has been the focal point of uh, all those movements, because you, know, you go either to or from the state capitol as you protest, and so it is interesting. I mean, I, I could see from my balcony on the 33rd floor the mayor walking arm in arm with people during, and the police chief actually uh, too, during some of the Black Lives Matter protests as they would walk uh, the wrong way on Arapaho Street, but it was all blocked off so that they could do exactly that. Uh, You know, and then turn uh, down 17th or even 15th sometimes and then march up from there to the state capitol. So, you know, I mean, And then, two, the parade of lights, when that happens, the pageantry of downtown is awesome. But at the same time, you know, I mean, there are people there that are down on their luck without any question whatsoever.
1: You are such a valuable person to talk to. We are, of course, going to get to the topic of guns, but policing, you, a former police chief, a veteran officer, detective, etc., and then your paramedic experience. I'm worried about the police. I worked with them during my career as a prosecutor. The 80s, the 90s, loved those guys. Just saw a bunch of them in Arvada and mourning Jerry Kennedy, and we commiserated, and I felt a real affinity and a team approach. And I think when they enforced the law, they could give a shit about politics. It didn't matter to them. But I'm worried about the police these days, the inroads of Trumpism. And that George Floyd incident was so disturbing, not the least of which because Derek Chauvin was, you know, putting out the life of George Floyd with his knee on his neck and a nonchalant attitude. But the three other cops... Who didn't do anything? And, you know, we have Elijah McLean here in Colorado. What's going on? Is something different now, John Morse?
2: <laughs> and, you know, I do wonder, truthfully, if it's different. I mean, it certainly is different from the standpoint that those two incidents you just referred to were captured on video. Uh, And that's a huge difference because now it's not so much the officer's word against somebody else's word, you know, even a deceased suspect's word, but rather it's, you know, here's some video evidence. And granted, you know, there are different vantage points and we have to take everything into account. Absolutely. But... Uh, I think that's kind of what changed. I mean, because even, you know, in the 90s when I was a police officer, I can't remember exactly what they called it, but it's something like police pursuit um, syndrome. And so basically the argument was, you know, after the police have chased somebody at 90 miles an hour, there is just so much adrenaline in them, they just don't have a choice but to, uh, you know, do a Rodney King kind of situation, uh, which actually happened while I was in the police academy. Um, you know, and, and pull the suspect out and just pummel them because they are just so full of adrenaline and rage and frustration in the whole nine yards. And you know, and I of course knew instantly that that was absolute unadulterated nonsense. But it's just funny because I saw a video then at some point when dash cams started to happen, uh, even in the late 90s, and there was a pursuit and it was not in Colorado, it was someplace back east, as I recall. And, you know, the same pursuit everybody has, and and exactly, you know, some officer, like the third officer, fourth officer in, after the suspect had been removed from the car and handcuffed and was lying on the ground, uh, this fourth officer just came in and just started pummeling him. And um, the other, some of the other officers started telling the officer that was doing that, you could see you couldn't hear them but you could see their lips moving and see their gestures and they were pointing back to the first police car that had a video camera and they were basically saying you know dude there's a camera in that car everything you're doing is being captured on video that was the end of police pursuit mm-hmm. syndrome
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know and so it is and and you know and I can tell you absolutely that I worked with Officers that just firmly believe that a little back-alley justice is good for everybody and I couldn't disagree more vehemently and I worked very hard to reform the police departments from within and Eventually, you know now I am without uh, And you know, I the in 2013 we passed many bills and we only talked obviously briefly about the gun bills but one that didn't pass was one that I wanted to do that I never got time to do because of everything else that was going on. But I was having (laughs) a horrible time getting support, even from the attorney general. And that was, uh, uh, I called it police truthiness. And, you know, you as a police officer, you lie on a police report in an IA um, investigation or in court. You lose your right to be a police officer in the entire state. You lose your post certificate. And they've since passed it. Uh, but at the time, it was just heresy. And it's, like, and it's like, no, I mean, this is what the public thinks they're getting is absolute integrity from police officers. That when I say you were doing 45 in a 20-mile-an-hour zone, you know, that's gold because I said it and I'm a police officer and my integrity is beyond reproach, as it should be. Um but you know, when you've got these situations where it isn't, I mean we need to eliminate those folks right away. And as you know, you know, as a former prosecutor, theoretically, you know, there's a Supreme Court decision, the Brady case, and so we call it Brady baggage, where if you do lie, then the, the defense is always entitled to that. Basically the first page of every police report you send in needs to say, Hey, I'm a certified liar, but here's what I saw and did on this particular case. So the defense has that so that they can, you know, impeach the officer's testimony. It's like, no, there shouldn't be Brady baggage. That person should not be a police officer, now or ever again. You know, I mean, it just, ah. So it's, uh, and I do think that um, most, if not nearly all, police officers go into it with clean hands and a clean heart and really want to do good and want to serve and protect the public, literally, um, and, but after five or six years, too many of them just are too jaded, and I think, you know, it has to do with the, some of the training's not that great, um, and some of the classroom training is great, but the field training then isn't as great, and, I, you know, I've, again, I've heard from many, many officers, I mean, the court system and the system releases them just as fast as we catch them, so what's the point? And right. it's like, wow, that's interesting, because that is not my experience, Turns out when you do a halfway decent investigation and you document it completely and thoroughly, those folks don't come right out. They have to do a little bit of time first. So, you know, I, I experienced quite a bit of frustration there too with, you know, geez, come on, guys and gals. If we do our job and do it in a first rate way, uh, we win most of the time. And that's not to say that, you know, none of us... That's right, us t- truth is,
1: truth is on law enforcement side. And I don't know about right. Fountain, but in Denver there was more than enough real crime. We didn't need to make it up, and we tried to get tough on right. the bad guys. And yep. I, I just yep. worry, and we see it throughout our politics now, that you become part of a team... And then the team all sees truth a certain way because that's the team perspective. And Black Lives Matter, uh, whether it's true or not, or amplified wrongly on Fox News, and and honestly, Black Lives Matter was born of that shooting in Ferguson, Officer Wilson, Michael Brown. I didn't think that was the best, you know, cause because that cop I think was under threat. And I'm not sure Michael Brown was saying, hands up, don't shoot. I'm just not sure that was a great story. Even Trayvon Martin, this and that. But the bottom line is, as the police keep getting attacked uh, from Ferguson to other situations, and then riots start happening where things are thrown at cops and defund the police is chanted. And on Fox News, they say, you know, the cops are like, you know, bacon, fry them up words to that effect, that you start to going to your corners, and we're going to go to the far right side and battle these guys on the far left side, and it becomes a never-repeating cycle, and before I end this rant and turn it over to you, you've got (laughs) a a former commander-in-chief who talked to a bunch of cops and said, you know how you protect their head when you arrest them? You don't need to. You can knock their head into the door. I remember he said right. that right after I broadcast from the White House. I said, that ain't cool. And then the next weekend was Charlottesville, and that was my breaking point. It should have been sooner. But I'm going to shut up and just say, isn't this sort of a, a self-fulfilling cycle that is the police— Uh, get derided by the left, they become further right and further on the Trump side of things. And it makes our whole uh, polarization worse, especially if the police are choosing a team.
2: Yeah. And I mean, there's no question that it's, it's difficult emotionally and whatnot. But my beef has always been, look, we need to see the other side, even if we don't necessarily agree with it, but we still need to see it and at least think about whether or not it might be true. I mean, I had a situation when I was in the detective bureau, um, we solved a burglary ring you know when we cleared one hundred and sixty nine burglary cases, the ring actually probably committed closer to three hundred but seriously, the rest of them weren't even reported and these burglars were very very good at what they did and the the guy that did most of the actual burglarizing as opposed to fencing the stuff was a uh, white guy with blonde hair and blue eyes that was about six foot two um, and probably about 28 29 30 years old something like that and you know he cased places and he was meticulous about what he did and how he did it and he did not want to confront anybody ever um but he did want to steal their stuff and and get money out of it well on um, there were in those 169 police reports there were five times that he was seen and he always did his burglaries at night And there were five times when people came home unexpectedly. And so obviously he made a beeline for the back of the house and jumped over the fence and on he went, you know, to to escape. And he did. All five times he escaped. But all five times the victims were white. He, again, is white as the driven snow. And all five times he was described as a black male. Wow. And that was when it really struck me right upside the head. It's like, oh, my God. I mean, I treat people fairly and the same, and I don't care about the color of their skin and all that stuff, or so I say and so I believe, and so I really did try to do. But I was dumbfounded with that. I mean, dumbfounded. And that's when I started to realize, oh, my God. You know, I mean, there really is racial bias in policing. And it's like, why can't we just admit that and say, all right, how do we fix it? How do we address it? While at the same time, there are plenty of very horrible, violent black criminals. And we don't want to throw them out in the bathwater. I mean, you know, we need to deal with them too. So it it is just a challenge, but at the same time you know, come on, guys, I mean when and again, when you're writing that police report as you're the officer investigating the burglary, well, of course, it was a black man. That's what they say. That's what they saw. And then when you're the detective that's actually interviewing the suspect and driving around with the suspect, which I did for about 50 hours, you know, where he pointed out what he did and how he did it and all that. best part of his plea agreement and all that stuff. But, you know, so I know this. I'm sitting next to the burglar, the real burglar. And he was described as a black male, but in fact he's white as the driven snow. So, you know, it's those kinds of things that frankly, an awful lot of police officers don't have that experience. I mean, they don't they don't uh, get to interview burglars that really did commit the burglary. Again, because they're too busy coming out of their police car fourth in line and starting beating the guy. And it's like, why are you doing that? We need to talk to this guy and figure out why he did what he did. And plus you know, that confession is a huge piece of evidence. So we need to talk to Everyone we arrest, and we need to get them to tell us what really happened. And the only way to do that is to be a human being and legitimately care about their side of the story.
1: Right. Don't be a know it all. What about your experience as paramedics? So valuable in the Elijah McLean homicide, is what they're calling it. We have paramedics charged with the crime that's kind of unprecedented i wonder what your perspective is on all of that
2: and you know i mean that stuff happened much later than me i mean my career in um, paramedicine was from the uh, you know the mid mid to late 70s through the very early 90s and we didn't have things like ketamine i mean we had to subdue people with just uh Curlecs, you know, tie them to the stretcher, if you will, so that they didn't injure us and uh, and talk to them, you know what I mean, and keep them calm that way as best we could. And, I mean, one of our, you know, pat expressions always was, we're not the cops. Uh, and, you know, again, 99 times more than that out of 100, that worked. But the few times, you know, then, yeah, you just tie them up. So giving uh, the ketamine, you know, I mean, that's just, that's something that's totally... Foreign to me, even though when we would get to the emergency room there you know the, the, then drugs could be administered to calm people down, but again you know I mean you're monitoring them very 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 closely, and that's the problem in my view in this case it's like you know if you're going to give a drug that's going to be that much of a sedative, I mean you've got to monitor that patient like there's no tomorrow and again, that can be more challenging and you know and sometimes you know you're yucking it up with the uh, other first responders that are on the scene and stuff like that, it's like, no, your responsibility is to this patient. And, you know, for him to have you know, to not be breathing as long as he was, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a problem for the paramedics. I mean, that was lousy care, even if you were going to administer drugs to keep him calm. I mean, he becomes 1000% your responsibility. Uh, and again, there might have been allergic reactions and things like that, too, which, you know, so we, we got to be on the lookout for that so that we can reverse things as best we can as fast as we can. And I do think and I, I get it. And I, now I'm, you know, absolutely preaching from a perch that we have to all be careful about. But even, you know, the homeless and treating the homeless, it does get tiresome. You see the same people over and over and over, you know, drunk as skunks or high as kites. And, you know, uh, really, am I going to treat this person just like the, you know, 75-year-old person that's having sudden onset chest pain and is having a heart attack that's going to change their life? Uh, Yes, is the answer. And man, is it hard to do. I get it. But that's what you got to do. And if you can't, then it's time to get out of the business and and go do something else.
1: Right. And, your story about uh, the white burglar maybe it ties into Elijah McClain maybe he would have been treated different if he was a white guy I don't know but I wonder if you John Morris think gosh if I would have been one of those paramedics I think I could have talked him down because that's a skill and an art form and I bet you were good
2: at it and you know with all due respect to myself I I was good at it, and I was good at it as a police officer, too, and the paramedics and firemen used to literally laugh at me because I was so good at it. Um, because, again, I don't want to wrestle you or fight with you if I don't have to. That's way more energy and risk to me than it, than it needs to be, and I don't know that I would have been able to talk Elijah McLean down, but I can assure you that I would have been monitoring him so closely that you know, I mean, if I need to intubate him now to protect his airway because I have just compromised it by giving him some drugs that are basically telling his body, yeah, don't worry about breathing. It's like then I need to worry about breathing for him. I mean, we just—that's what you know. I mean, that's where those paramedics, uh, in my view, are are in the most trouble. Is you know, that was your patient and. Uh, you, you just can't let that happen. But at the same time, you know, the other thing that needs to be said, in my view, in everybody's defense than the first responders, there are also, you know, tens of thousands of thousands of these incidents where they do do it right. And they have to give ketamine because the person is, you know, high as a kite or whatever else. And they do. And it goes fine. And they monitor them the way they should. And, you know, a day or two later, they walk out of uh, whatever facility they've had to be brought to. You know, that absolutely happens and we don't hear about the good stuff and there is good stuff and most of these encounters go swimmingly well it it is only the bad ones that we hear about but at the same time as police officers and as paramedics we have to know that going in it's like you know i gotta i gotta be on my game 1000 percent of the time because you know the little old lady call can go south very very quickly and so we need to be paying attention 100% 100% of the time and, you know, be there as an advocate for our patient or, you know, again, as a, as a police officer, I'm here to serve and protect everyone. And that doesn't mean, you know, you're a bad guy and you're going to jail. No question about that. But I don't have to stick my thumb in your eye as part of that process.
1: That's nice. I think he had to be great at both jobs. Which job is more stressful, being a cop or a paramedic? See, <laughs> which one's more
2: dangerous um you know i mean let's face it we're in it for the adrenaline rush as well as helping people but having a good call i mean that's what you live for uh, you know and so and and they absolutely can be dangerous both of them can be dangerous but they also aren't you know i mean you get training and you take the precautions that you need to take frankly you know i think the covid thing especially in the beginning that was the most danger paramedics had faced ever which is not to say some of them haven't been shot and all that kind of stuff they have been but usually when that happens it's because somebody did something very stupid uh and so you know they're 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 both high adrenaline they're both high reward high risk and they're both frustrating from the standpoint of you know and I tell a story which I won't bore you with but you know I mean I remember very clearly a call I ran in 1979 where a 21 year old guy got T boned in an intersection by a drunk driver. He was not wearing a seatbelt, so it moved him from the driver's seat into the passenger seat. If he had been wearing a seatbelt, he would have been killed instantly, frankly. It's one of the three cases of that that I've seen in my career on either side of the ledger. Um, And we fought for 45 minutes to get him out of that car and get him to the hospital and keep him alive. And we lost. And and, it, and so I will tell you a little bit of the story. Then, you know, there was the fire department, of course, had to work on getting him extricated. My partner and I were working on keeping him alive, which, you know, we were doing IVs. We were doing we were intubating him. We were breathing for him. And so it was noon. And when we first got there, we actually could use a bystander to help us. Um. Hold the ID bag and keep an eye on it so that when it gets empty, you know, when it gets down to this level, let me know so I can come and change, you know, and put a fresh bag on it. Whereabouts? It? I'm picturing
1: people. this scene. Do you remember the intersection?
2: Yeah, it's Hancock, Delta and Hancock. Where's that? I In Colorado Delta. Springs.
1: Oh, Colorado Springs. Okay.
2: <clears throat> so um, so I see there's a man standing closed. I could just see, you know, that guy is willing to help. I mean, he's staying out of the way, he's being 100 professional, 100% professional, professional, but he wants to help. So I bring him and I ask him if he can hold the IV bag and tell me, you know, when it's down and all that kind of stuff. And so I put him right at the passenger side fender and the passenger side door that's been bent back to the fender. So there's a little space between that fender and that door. We have deliberately, you know, bent that door way over so that we can access the patient through that space. And it's the only space we have to access the patient. And, uh, and he did everything that I told him to do, you know, not a peep out of him. And, you know, on we went. And, uh, you know, like, like I said, 45 minutes later, we finally get him out of the car. As we do, he goes into cardiac arrest. We put the mask pants on, which they don't do anymore. But, you know, and started CPR, and my partner was treating the patient, and I was driving. And, you know, I went to the – I drove to the hospital just as fast as I could because, you know, we knew we needed a trauma surgeon more than he needed paramedics. And he didn't make it, as I said. And eventually, you know, so we're cleaning up the ambulance and getting ready for the next call and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so I'm back and forth between the emergency room and the ambulance. And at one point, one of the nurses grabs me and says, hey, would you help me for a few minutes? Because I need to get the patient cleaned up as best I can because his family is here. And I say, you know, of course. And so um, I do that. And we get him clean, you know, as cleaned up as we can. He still has a tube in his throat from the intubation. You know, all that has to stay because he's going to be a coroner's case. But, you know, we've got a clean sheet on him and we've cleaned up the, the blood as best we can so that, you know, he looks a little bit presentable, even though, you know, he doesn't do anything like he did, you know, two hours ago when his family had last seen him. So um, and usually, I mean, I hate dealing with the families that have lost a loved one. I mean, there's nothing worse. And so uh, he's. Uh, we we finish this and I am like all right now I'm out of here and the family comes in right as I'm trying to leave and so I don't get to leave and so I'm just kind of merging myself into the wall as best I can and his sister comes it's his sister and father that are there and his sister goes straight to him and of course you know she's wailing uncontrollably because you know it's awful it's awful and the father comes right up to me and he grabs my hand and he says thank you. Thank you for doing everything you could to save my son. And, you know, and I'm trying to be gracious and whatnot, I look and it's like, oh my God, it's the man that held the IV bag. So, he actually watched his son die. He watched us fight with everything we had, but it wasn't anywhere near enough. But he was you know, quote-unquote fine with it because he knew, you know what, there's not two other folks I would pick to be treating my son because these guys care. They're doing everything they can. They clearly know what they're doing. I mean, it was, it was so awful. But, you know, at the same time, uh, it's obviously one of the defining moments of my life. It's like you just, you never know who's watching you. Your mother tells you that always, but, but it's true. And, you know, I mean, I couldn't be more disappointed in what we did, but I couldn't be prouder of how we did it.
1: Well, I'm not watching you, but I'm listening aptly, and I think I'm starting to figure you out. I think you are a do-gooder and that you like to do good things for people, and that's what's driven you in your professional life. And that's why you are the perfect guest this week with your police and paramedic background and You responded to that tragedy. You did everything you could to save that life. And gosh, I love and respect that. And it brings us to Uvalde and guns. And my God, how you must feel, John Morris, when you watched what happened in Uvalde with your background as a police officer, paramedic, legislator. Tell me what's going through your mind.
2: Um it's so fascinating that as a country we just refuse to protect our children and to understand that there's really nothing more important and all these shootings you know i mean they're all the child of somebody even the 50 year olds and the 86 year olds but much less when they're 10 year olds but the frustration was even greater you know in that we did as much as we could in 2013 but it was nowhere near enough. I mean, there's still plenty that needed to be done then and needs to be done now. And so, you know, I mean, do I sleep soundly at night knowing that I did the very best I could to keep people safe by, you know, passing universal background checks and magazine limits in Colorado in 2013 and losing my Senate seat over it? No, (laughs) no. Uh I, I, And especially, I mean, man, if I'd have known I was going to be recalled anyway, it's like, man, uh we should have done so much more even then. I mean, we were just doing what we thought could be accomplished at the time, and I, I just regret so much that we didn't pass an assault weapons ban then and there. I mean, it needed to be done, but obviously we were arguing about, background checks were crying out loud you know you had to have one if you bought a gun at a gun store you had to have one if you bought a gun at a gun show but you didn't have to have one if you were buying a gun out of the trunk of my car let's and- back
1: let's back it up just a little bit because uh we we have to talk about when and why you introduced that legislation and i've been around long enough to know the history of the battles with the nra down in the capitol Where were you during this special session Roy Romer called in 1993? Were you in Colorado Springs, Denver, Boulder? Where were you then?
2: I was I was in Colorado Springs in the front seat of a police car.
1: Do you remember that special session? A group I was a part of Punch people united, no children's handguns. We brought James Brady to the special session. I've got a picture in my studio, Roy Romer shaking James Brady's hand. He got shot by Colorado John Hinckley, who also shot Ronald Reagan.
5: Uh,
1: so, so we 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 got uh, over NRA opposition, serious laws that you can't give handguns to juveniles, and thank goodness that got passed. We had so many things going on, but when you were in the state senate, you achieved the high. Position of Senate President, and then Sandy Hook happened. I remember it was a couple days before my birthday. I think December fourteenth. Just right. awful. Yep. Um, it, it, do you remember where you were during a Sandy Hook and what you decided you had to do in response?
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I remember. I mean, you know, that's like the the JFK assassination to the prior uh, generation. You know, the generation before me that they, you know, they know exactly where they were yes i i do and because it's fascinating um the legislature i um, so the, the, the press uh, has a, an annual event just before the session starts which is early january and it's usually mid-december and at they at the press club the press comes and the governor comes and then the senate president and the speaker of the house and so those two people are from the majority party. And so in this case, it was Hickenlooper and uh, Ferrandino, Mark Farrandino and I, uh, all Democrats, because uh, we did control all three chambers at the time. And then the, the minority leaders from both chambers. So there are five people uh, by definition, you know, the governor, whichever party he's from, and then two from the uh, majority and two from the minority. And we you know, speak to the press about what's coming on you know, in this session, what to expect and what we're gonna try to do. And, not do and undo and redo and all that. And uh, that was at 1.30 that afternoon. And I think it happened about uh, 11 o'clock our time. And I was actually uh, at the Panera Bread that's no longer there, that was across the street from the Capitol on Grant Street. And I ran into Beth McCann, you know, who's now the district attorney for Denver. Right. And My she former had been working-
1: colleague from long ago in the Denver DA's office. Keep going. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And so she was in the house, and she'd been working for several months with the police chiefs, and um, I asked her, you know, how it was going, because they were trying to figure out, you know, uh, what to do about assault weapons and what kind of things to do, because, again... This is December 14th, as you say, but uh, in late July, you'll recall the Aurora Theater shooting had happened. So we would had two shootings, one right here in Colorado, within five months. And, you know, there were 70 people injured and 12 people killed in Aurora. So, you know, obviously this was a huge deal, but I really do think that uh, Sandy Hook is what launched it. And so... um, Beth said you know that she was having trouble because they couldn't define an assault weapon and I said I can do that in 45 seconds but whatever it is we got to go because there's no way we have 19 kindergartners murdered with a military style assault weapon that's no business on any of our streets and there's no way that happens and we don't do something that to make sure that never ever happens again and so later an hour and a half two hours later at the press conference, you know, the Republicans, of course, didn't want to talk about it at all. It was thoughts and prayers, and it's too soon and all that. Um, and John Hickenlooper had announced the day before that he was actually ready to start doing some stuff uh, after the Aurora Theater shooting, because originally he even bought into the argument, no, it's too soon, we need to calm down, you know, let cooler heads prevail. It's like, we're talking about dead children. Uh, what's the problem with... The, how can you possibly ever have a cool head when you're talking about dead children? children Uh, but apparently there are people that think so so um i you know did whatever i did and uh, tim hoover who was a reporter for the denver post at the time cornered me afterwards and uh because i was really the only one that was talking about guns because i know something about guns and i know something about gun violence i mean because of all we've just talked about and, uh, and I said to him, this is the shooting that will change the consciousness of a generation. And that just spewed out of my mouth, and I was instantly, truthfully proud of it, and believed every syllable. And I couldn't have been more wrong. I mean, I, yeah. It, six weeks later, nobody remembered, nobody cared, you know. I mean, and we had to fight like hell to get universal background check, get a background check when you buy a gun out of the trunk of my car, because that's the only place, you know, that you didn't already have to have a background check in Colorado. And to limit the size of magazines, you know, from 30 to 15, and we introduced that bill as 10, uh, and I wanted it even lower than that, and then it was up to 15. It's like, ah, oh, God, you know, I mean, so that means the bad guy gets to shoot 15 rounds before he has to reload, which means, you know, he's got... longer to go before you get to try to take him down because, you know, the the time to take down a shooter is when they're reloading because at that point the gun is nothing more than a paperweight. Mm -hmm. But once he gets it reloaded, you know, he's back on the killing spree. So the more often he has to reload, the better. But now, you know, again, like I started to say with the benefit of hindsight, I mean, we, there's no question this country needs an assault weapons ban. But, you know, we don't control the country. We control Colorado. And Colorado needs an assault weapons ban. It's needed it for a long time. You know, when I said after the Boulder shooting, you know, I mean, uh, Governor Polis and the legislature need to pass an assault weapons ban, and they need to do it now. And if they don't, I won't ever vote for another one of them for any public office ever again. Because, I mean, this is a clear mandate. You know, somebody walks into a King Supers with an assault weapon in Colorado and kills people, and we're not. You know, well, you know, yeah, that's not. That's not uh, what we need to do. You know what? We should. We should enact a uh, a bill that requires people to report stolen guns. I'm 100 percent for that.
1: Well, we did. In fact, uh, the two year anniversary of the murder of Isabella Thales, I represent Darian Simon, her boyfriend who got shot and survived. Buy a damn AK-47 that the cops said was an AR-15, but I could not agree with you more. And the evidence is in that our assault weapon ban worked, and I don't know what my former colleague Beth McCann was talking about, because Denver, ever since I was there, passed an assault weapon ban municipally, and it's the Roberson case. It's been upheld. You want to know what an assault weapon is? It's an AR-15. It's an AK-47. Am I right, John Morris? Right.
2: Right. right. Absolutely. And Beth was doing the very best she can, and she was working with police chiefs uh, and to a very limited extent sheriffs, because by that time, the sheriffs had kind of just gone off the reservation already. You know, they were horrible during the 13th session, but, but she was working with who she could, and people were like, you know, splitting hairs over this. But once we had, you know, 19 kindergartners. And as it turns out, I mean, obviously I didn't know it at the time, but each of those deceased kindergartners had at least three wounds from that, uh, from the, that shooting. And the same, you know, I mean, the, the subtle thing that happened in Uvalde that, again, I got instantly was we need DNA samples to identify
1: these people. Uh, Sorry, uh, we're going to get to it, even though I can't take it, the damage done by these AR-15 bullets, things of that ilk. But let's go back to the 30-round magazines because everybody got up in arms, including my former radio partner. I need a 30-round magazine to defend myself because the bad guys can have, well, then we all should have machine guns. And damn it, that killer in Uvalde brought in a bunch of 30-round magazines. Now, didn't
2: he? right and you know frankly if you need 30 rounds to defend yourself you, you know you're such a crappy shot please you're a danger to yourself and others don't even try it and not to mention the fact that you know I mean if you really were to get into a real life uh, but, shooter, but what if
1: there's 5 or 10 of them out there coming to get me
2: <laughs> yeah, you know <laughs> yeah, and that's you know all just nonsense even though you always assume there's at least one more than you've already handled that's I, true uh, but I know. And but you don't, but that but you don't need an assault weapon. You need a defensive weapon. And right. that's what handguns are for. And that's mm-hmm. what you know the Supreme Court said in Heller versus DC. You know, we don't have a choice but to deal with handgun gun violence. I mean, right. And, the they, they, Court, and, and, and I prostitute. think Scalia
1: has said something about commonly used weapons, right? And and now the AR fifteen is becoming so popular. It's so dangerous. And the, the bullets, the, the magnitude of it, few people understand it better or ex- explained it as well as you did in the Denver Post. Tell everybody about the kind of weapons of war that were authorizing on the streets, and then further corroborate what I experienced during my 15 years in law enforcement prosecuting murder cases, is so often the murder weapon, the gun was stolen in a burglary or a break of a car. That's what happens, folks. The more guns out there, the more this is going to happen. Run with that, cheap Morse.
2: <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, that is true, although the other thing, the other statistic, which I don't have off the top of my head these days, but uh, the other gun that's going to be used against you more frequently is the one that you have in your house, quote-unquote, For your own defense, Uh, you know, I mean, when your husband gets really mad at you, uh, that's how you end up meeting your maker, is from the gun that is allegedly there to protect the family, it actually turns Right, or
1: God forbid it's suicide, a fight among siblings, an accident, the New England Journal of Medicine has done the studies, but... You and I are not talking about taking away guns from individual homeowners, now are we?
2: We are not. You know, I mean, to this day, I own a gun. But I don't own a military-style assault weapon. I own, you know, the defensive uh, pistol that I carried as a police officer as my backup gun. You know, and, and yes, it's, I know right where it is to this day. It's loaded and ready to rock and roll if I really needed it. But I know darn good and well you know, I, I'm not going to need it. Uh, there's just, there's way better ways to, to do things. And, you know, the, the violence is out there. I mean, you know, we're all worried about somebody jumping out of a bush and, and raping a woman, as an example, and that absolutely happens. But it's the rare, rare, rare case most of the time, you know. It's date rape and those kinds of things. I mean, your, your family and friends are way more uh, risk to you than some stranger in a bush or some you know, fifteen member horde that's coming to take you on, unless, you know, you're a drug dealer yourself and then you know I can't guarantee you that the rival gang won't send fifteen people into your house, but I still don't want those people with thirty round magazines to defend themselves.
1: But what if I'm a lawyer? I don't have time to do a lot of shooting, I'm not a good shot. Give me an AR fifteen because if I can nick the guy, he'll probably bleed out. How much more serious are the bullets coming out of a weapon like that?
2: Right. And so, you know, and again, it's been a while since I've done all this, but basically, you know, handguns will uh, eject a projectile at something like eight or 900 feet per second worth of velocity, uh, whereas these military-style assault weapons are closer to 3,500. Uh, so, you know, they are four or five times as powerful uh, and designed to destroy human beings, and, you know, on contact as best they can, and are lethal for uh, you know, 200 yards. Are you staying politically
1: active now?
2: Um, yeah, that's a trick question. I mean, you know, I I do the accounting for uh, ballot initiatives and things like that. Um. So that I'm I'm active in that regard. I still have some uh, communications and whatnot with some of the uh, gun groups, but for the most part, you know, I have just been running my CPA firm and keeping a low profile. It's but I thought you
1: were an adrenaline junkie. What are you doing for excitement? Who's going to win the (laughs) midterms?
2: And it is interesting that I. I think it took the better part of 27 years, but I think I got it out of my system. Uh, So I'm nowhere near as much of an adrenaline junkie as I was, I mean, in fact, I would say I'm not one at all. I mean, I I keep a little bit of track of what's going on, you know, I mean, and I listen to the scanner so that I know if my building is on fire, but I don't listen to the police part because there's too much chatter. So, you know, I mean, I still try to be aware of uh, my surroundings and things like that. And, you know, and there have been a couple of situations where I have had to bring my paramedic skills back into use very quickly as I see accidents or whatever. Um, But that doesn't happen that often, frankly, and it's been now probably seriously years since it's happened. Um, So I haven't been politically active. Uh, I do, you know, there are people who are, I get, calls and you know they have dissipated over the years but lately they have kicked back up that uh, you know people are just so sick of the profound lack of leadership on these issues that you know it's like come on john get back in the game because you were the one that actually did something i was like yeah yeah yeah
1: i think so, you should you know, I, I, I i like your passion and i bet donald trump gets you worked up too It does for (laughs) me. How about you? What's your reaction to January 6th?
2: Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's unconscionable. I mean, you know, as far as I'm concerned, those folks are all traitors and should be tried for treason. I mean, there's no, to me, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's fascinating to me that it's taking the Justice Department as long as it is, and the FBI as long as it is, to investigate this and, you know, charge these people and convict them and sentence them to long prison terms up to and including, frankly, Donald Trump. I mean, we all know he incited it. That's not even an issue. I mean, yeah, yes, you got to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt in court. I get it. But again, if you got halfway decent law enforcement officers that can write good reports and do good interviews and collect solid evidence, uh, yeah, this is a slam dunk.
1: I think so, too. I think put Detective Morse on the case. Let him get the witnesses together. Give me the file. I'll try that puppy. I think it's an easy case to prove. I mean, what's going on? Don't you think our rule of law really is at stake if if nothing happens to the people who perpetrated that?
2: I, I do, and you know, but but with all due respect, I think. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, discarded the rule of law very quickly into his term. And I just, uh, and I, I get it. And, you know, I mean, I, maybe if I was president, I would want to be King too. But what surprises me is those around him that allowed it to happen and continue on, including, you know, the attorney general who, you know, it's like, you're supposed to be somewhat independent and aloof and apolitical, uh, you know, I just, and, you know, I thought that uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, you know, when he was involved in that Bible thumping incident. Mark Milley in St. The John's Church, Church
1: yeah. with Mark Esper. At least right. Milley and Esper have apologized for that. And, well, and I themselves. do
2: think, yes, that, you know, that one, you know, the, the chairman was like, yeah, that was bad. I mean, what the heck was going on there? That's not something I'm, I want to ever be part of. And, you know, it's like, yes, exactly. And so same with some of the rest of these folks that, you know, I mean, somehow you can end up with somebody bad in public office. We see that, but those around them don't have to prop them up. They can help make sure they find the exit at the earliest possible time.
1: And, you know, you're a former police chief and Mark Esper has written a book saying that Donald Trump talked about shooting the protesters in the legs, stuff like that that Esper now comes out with. Of course, you won't hear that on talk radio. And that's how I'd like to end it with you because I was in the belly of the beast. And frankly, I wish I would have spoken up more against those, I'm just going to call them assholes, who led the recall against you. And you must have felt it from talk radio and the lying and the bullshit. And uh, it was kind of a precursor to Donald Trump the Tom Tancredo crowd, Peter Boyles. How do you feel about them and what happened to you? Uh, It it really was horrible. Here we have uh, a moderate Democrat, an accomplished guy, paramedic, former police chief. He's worked in public service, doing a great job as a state senator. He reacts to the Aurora Theater massacre and Sandy Hook with common sense gun reforms. And these assholes are going to run them out of office in an off-year recall, and they did it, and they got away with it? I'm pissed about it. You must be too, John Morrison.
2: And, you know, there's no question that it uh, taught me some very serious lessons about how our democracy actually works, which I think we should all be really careful about. And, And that's why, you know, I mean, right now, my mission is you know come on folks we got to stop voting for these people that are doing nothing to help keep our children safe uh, regardless of their party and of course you know the republicans aren't helping at all we get that but even the democrats i mean you know i mean right now in colorado the democrats control all three chambers and we're not uh, doing much of anything i mean they've passed several bills around the fringes in the last a couple of years ago, but this year, you know, all they did was say you can't have open carry at a polling place. Like, yeah, okay, great, but we've got children dying in schools, Governor. I mean, where's the special session to, you know, get the legislature together and get the assault yeah, but, weapons but ban why,
1: passed? What if, what if they whisper back? But what about John Morse? Remember what happened there?
2: Yeah, and again, um, I would give up my political career. 150 million more times to save more children's lives from unnecessary gun violence. God bless you.
1: Then you need to get back in office. And you know what? People need to stand up to the bullies, just like you did, and call out certain things. And one thing that's got me worked up is the so-called Independence Institute, and John Caldera, who is part of that recall (laughs) effort against you as well. And how many people know that they've had their toast buttered by the NRA for decade after decade, they get that money from the gun industry and then pretend like they are objective commentators... Am I right, John Morse?
2: Yeah. how much of an objective commentator do you want to be? Our children are dying, and they don't need to be It's that simple, and so, yeah, yes, there are people that will be on the other side, but the rest of us have to, as you're saying, stand up and say, yeah, no, we don't vote for people that uh, that don't stand for protecting our children. I mean, it's, it's that simple. I mean, this morning I saw the reaction of uh, uh, one of the representatives, Ken Buck from Colorado, and he said, Yeah, in my district, you know, I mean, this is the weapon of choice to shoot raccoons to protect our chickens. It's like, dude, we're talking about protecting children. And, you know, the ranchers raised chickens long before there were AR-15s, and they will raise them long after there are AR-15s. But if you're not willing to help us protect our children, why would anyone ever vote for you again? And that's where it's time for us as the citizens to, so, lead, because we're not getting the leadership from our elected officials. We're not getting it from the Republican side, you know, that's a given. But we're not even getting it from the Democratic side. I mean, like I said, I don't know why Governor Poe, I haven't heard Boo from governor polis or from the speaker of the house or from the senate presidents like come on guys we could call a special session to start monday get these bills passed by wednesday signed wednesday night we could have gun safety legislation on the books in colorado protecting our children a week for less than a week from now and what are we getting thoughts and prayers i'm sick to death of it and so were an awful lot of people around me.
1: So what are you saying? That you won't vote for Jared Polis unless he does oh, that?
2: Oh, I wasn't going to vote for Jared Polis after the Boulder shooting when he didn't pass an assault weapons ban between the Boulder shooting and the end of the last session. And, you know, and again, he has a chance to redeem himself, no ifs, ands, or buts. And I've never spoken a crossword with uh, Jared Polis. But it's time to actually lead. And if you don't want to lead, get the heck out of the way and let's get somebody that will. Uh, And, you know, the Republicans aren't going to offer an alternative to him that's going to be any better on gun policy. But even us Democrats, we need to send the message loud and clear to Jared Polis. Hey, get off the stick. We got to protect our children. I mean, you know, (laughs) They're dying from gunshot wounds instead of COVID, for crying out loud. It's like, oh, my God. Yeah, I just, yeah. you're right. It's I'm
1: the number one cat killer cat. of children in America. Right. How shameful.
2: And, and it's the number one killer of children in Colorado as well. So it's not just, well, yeah, because Chicago's got such horrible statistics. Like, no, this is our problem, too. And, again, we pass an assault weapons ban in Colorado. Does that mean people can just go to Wyoming and get them? It does. But it will make it more difficult in Colorado and slow this down. And, again, if all 50 states would do that, Congress might get a clue and actually do it nationwide as well. But we got to start doing something. We've got to have some leadership here. We got, it's got to happen, boys and girls. And it's up to us to do it. Because if we're going to continue to vote for these do-nothing folks when it comes to gun safety and the senseless slaughter of our children, then they know, hey, senseless slaughter of our children is not a problem. You know, Ken Buck likely is going to get some votes from people that really want to kill raccoons with AR-15s and don't care about children. They would care if it was theirs. And that's my other point, too, is we've got to start carrying uh, That, that, ass, that
1: ass with a decorative AR-15 on his wall, American flag, to say nothing of Lauren Boebert. What a Colorado embarrassment. I am totally on your side, John Morse. And every time you say dead children, it's getting to me. I'm a parent. Honestly, I, I don't know. You know, when people ask you, should I have children? Don't you have to factor this in now? It's like people are, are wondering and, and yeah. worried about America. I, I like Canada's gun laws a lot better. It's sensible.
2: Right. right, right. Yeah, it's pretty interesting, you know, that even just in the last couple of weeks, you know, you can't go to church without risking being shot. You can't go to the doctor's office without being risking being shot. You can't go to school, and you can't go to the grocery store, which we already knew here in Colorado. But, you know, in Buffalo, arguably it's worse because we were killing people because of the color of their skin. I mean, how far has this country come when we raise kids that say it's okay to kill people because of the color of their skin? You know, that goes right back to my white is the driven snow burglar. Mm -hmm. It's like, come on, guys. we got to do a much better job of recognizing we're Americans and we're human beings. We're not black. We're not white. We're not male. We're not female. We're not gay. We're not straight. We're Americans, and Americans don't let their children die senselessly to gun violence so people can shoot raccoons. I mean, oh, my God. I just, uh, are you kidding me? I mean, and we all have to get this man. We have to. And we have to say, you know, yep, I'm never voting for Ken Buck. You know, he's not in my district. Of course, I wouldn't vote for him for a million other reasons. But, oh, my God. But even the Democrats. Come on, Jared Polis. I Call think I know. I know. I session. know
1: I know what we can do. Because you are knowledgeable. You're driven. You're not afraid. Why don't you apply to be police chief in Aurora? Why don't you <laughs> apply to be police chief in Denver? Why don't you run again for governor or some high office, senator. I mean, come on. And do you feel the same way about Michael Bennett, or is he advocating for an assault weapon ban? Is this, and, does know, this do apply on a federal level too?
2: It, it, you know, it, it does. It, it absolutely does. And, you know, I did find it interesting, and not in a positive way, but, you know, there's a bipartisan group of senators in D.C. that are working together to see you know, if they can come up with anything. And you know that hasn't happened in a while on gun violence. So, I mean, I I applaud it and hope that it can lead to something. But again, I want it to lead to an assault weapons ban that's actually gonna help us reduce gun violence and not, you know, well, you gotta lock your guns up and keep them safe. It's like, yes, you need to do that. But we need to do so much more. But that bipartisan group of senators does not include one from Colorado. And Governor Hickenlooper, you know, signed the bills that we passed in 2013 and took credit for them when he ran for president. Uh, What are you doing now, Senator? Good one. And
1: where is Michael Bennett? I'm going to try to get him on the show. Joe O'Day has agreed to come on. He's a Republican. He's a good one to talk to. Next week on episode 100, I have Kyle Clark on. I don't know if you saw his editorial commentary, but it was a lot like yours in the post, which is, let's cut the bullshit. It is the guns. Forget about hardening the target, this and that. We got to do something about these weapons of war. Kyle Clark said it. I think he's a leader in this regard. You certainly are. Who else do you look for for inspiration? And how do you think Joe Biden is doing? Last night, Thursday night, he called for an assault weapon ban. And he said, the data now proves it. When we had an assault weapon ban, we had less mass murders. I think he's right. Do you?
2: Right. I do. I do. Um, And again, you know, I applaud him for... uh, Suggesting what we need to do, which basically, you know, is the same things I said in the Denver Post. So at least everybody is starting to recognize, look, here are the kinds of things that we, this is eminently solvable. We just choose not to, and I'm saying let's choose to instead of choose not to, because we are talking about innocent lives that we really ought to protect and the government's primary responsibility, in my view, is to protect. I do want Joe Biden to actually get something accomplished. And again, I'm not as familiar with all the Force and y2s in DC as I am in Colorado. Uh, And I know, you know, Joe Manchin has been a problem and all that, but it's like, come on, we gotta figure out how to solve these problems. And Washington DC can do a whole lot more um, bargaining back and forth than we can in Colorado. And so, come on, figure out a way to actually get this done instead of just rattling your saber and we still don't get anything accomplished. It's like, we gotta get, it's got to get done. But again, I think the voters have to help do that by, you know, if we would throw some folks out of office that have not been strong supporters of gun safety, even those that have just been Milba Toast supporters, throw them out of office, we, Congress would pass something in January. I mean, it, it won't take very much. It's just that we all have to get together and decide we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. Or we're not, and we are going to take it some more, and hopefully it's not my child, you know, which uh, that's just not the right approach. Hope is too expensive a strategy, because when it fails, you're at the funeral home, and you don't ever want to be there.
1: What about my nomination of you to be Aurora Police Chief? Would you consider (laughs) it?
2: And, you know, I don't think... I mean, the, the police definitely have their problems and need to be doing what they need to do. But I don't know that this—the leadership that we need to ban assault weapons—comes from the police. Um, I think it, you know, it comes from our elected leaders, and that's who we need to hold accountable to get this done.
1: Well, time out. What about running for mayor of Denver? <laughs> uh,
2: Hey, you know, there are plenty of people that have talked to me about just exactly that. And, you know, and even uh, four years, uh, three and a half, whatever it was, uh, years ago when uh, Mayor Hancock's numbers really weren't that great, you know, it's like, come on, we could do this. And, uh, you know, I said no then, and I haven't said yes yet. Well, that's
1: fascinating. Okay, one more time travel question. The year 1996, where were you?
2: Uh, so I was in the Colorado Springs police department. All right. I was running against
1: Bill Ritter for Denver DA. I don't know what happened to him. No, I do. He became governor and we're back to being friends. And, you know, we fought about a lot of things, but we didn't fight about guns. We were both right where you are, ban assault weapons. And we really tried to crack down hard on people who used guns for crimes And uh, you are just like that. I think experienced people in law enforcement know that. Bill Ritter's an ally on this issue. And uh, I just think you'd be great. You'd be great back in public service. And I can feel the fire in your belly.
2: I mean, what is it?
1: Are you a family man? I don't even
2: know. No, yeah, no, I'm single and carefree. I mean, I've been married and divorced twice, but the last time was... 25 years ago so and i i'm the oldest of 10 children so i got my fill of that there so i don't have any children so uh you know it's true that i could just like i did when i went to the senate you know throw it all away and go work for thirty thousand dollars a year and figure out how to retire some other time no,
1: America, Denver uh, pays a lot more than that yeah, so does, does chief of police plus i think you get a membership at Denver Country Club, all that sort of perks. <laughs> you've got to think about this. I, I want to stay in touch. You know, you've been so generous with your time, but I, I want you to stay involved. Your post article was great. You you also say, let the trial lawyers sue the gun manufacturers like they did cigarette manufacturers. I totally agree with that. Why do these guys get protection when they market this stuff to kids and they know the dangers, it's outrageous, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it absolutely is. Even though that particular tact you just took, I think the Newtown people managed to, you know, wiggle through a loophole. And I think the Uvalde people are going to start with that loophole. And I hope that that does start to get the gun manufacturers to really understand, hey, you know, you put a whole bunch of poison on our street. And every once in a while, poison is really great for killing weeds or whatever. But when it contaminates the whole water supply and starts killing people indiscriminately, y- yeah, we got to control that poison much more so than we do, you know. So I, 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 that's we got to do that, too. Um, but the assault weapons ban is quick and easy and obvious. The rest is all a little bit more nuanced, even though, as you allude to, absolutely, you know, placa needs to go away. And Colorado has its own placa, which is basically saying, you know, you can't sue a gun seller or a manufacturer when they screw up a background check and sell to somebody that turns out to kill a bunch of people. Um, and ours passed, like, in 1985 and the federal one, 2004 or five, something like that. So it, ours was on the books for a good 20 years longer than the federal one. They're both are still on the books and neither has any place on the books. And so, again, that's a great example in my view of, hey, Governor, when you call that special session, get rid of Colorado's placa. We're all Democrats here. You know, we don't need to protect gun people from this. And the truth is, even once we do, they still have the federal protection. So it's, it's an easy win, uh, at the local level that won't have as much impact until the federal one is gone. But I just assume get rid of the state one so that uh, when the federal one goes away, we're in good shape because we've learned the hard way with a woman's right to choose. You know, if you don't have that stuff securely somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, the conservative court's going to take it away from you.
1: Not a people like you get involved. I'm so glad you wrote the column It's a thrill to be able to speak to you. I hope it's okay if I call you a do-gooder. Is that okay? It's a compliment.
2: (laughs) Right. And yes, I I take no offense. Maybe I'm supposed to, but I'm not smart enough to.
1: No. You are genuinely (laughs) committed to helping people and society, and you're worked up about dead children. I can't even think about it, talk about it, but with you I can because you have solutions, and I agree. An assault weapon ban, long past due. John Morris, thanks so much for all the time you've given me late on a Friday.
2: You're most welcome. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Take care. Bye now. Okay. Talk to you later.
1: Now, during the pandemic and otherwise, a lot of people have so much affection for their pets. That must come up all the time. What's going to happen to Scruffy? What can you tell us about that, Michael Bailey?
5: What you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado. You put money into trust and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog. And it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, You can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals.
1: How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer.
5: So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me.
1: Wasn't John Moore's full of passion? Outstanding guest on this episode 99. When I think about the number 99, I think about 100 next week. Kyle Clark, the most popular news broadcaster in Colorado, influential journalist, took a stand after Uvalde and on a host of issues. Kyle Clark, our special guest on episode 100. As for episode 99, we need to hear from Agent 99, The oh-so-lovely Barbara Feldon from Get Smart with Don Adams. Here they were in a phone booth hiding out from the bad guys when the bad guys had water come up and they are about to drown. And they had this humorous exchange. It all ends well. Agent 99 realizes she has a ring that will cut the glass and they get out. But listen to this humor with Agent 99 and Maxwell Smart. Good work, 99. You're a lifesaver.
3: They'll never think of looking in here. After they've gone by, we can sneak back and get out a window.
1: Right. There's no place safer in the world to hide than a phone booth.
3: <laughs> Max! Water! Let's go. 99, we're locked in. But
1: how? I don't know. The doors must seal automatically when the water is released. Oh. This is some kind of shadowproof glass. 99?
6: This is no ordinary phone booth. <laughs> what do you do? I don't
5: know. If I had a gun, we could we could blast our way out. I've got a gun. Oh, good. Give it a minute.
2: Oh, no. I left it in my purse in Dr. Brown's waiting room. Max, your telephone so We can call the chief.
5: Right. Short circuit 99. Oh, no. If we could only call the chief.
3: Wait. We're
7: in a phone booth.
1: Of course we're. Right. <laughs> The 99, do you have any change? Or all I have is a
7: quarter. Oh, Max, use the quarter.
1: Uh, use a quarter for a 10-cent phone call? <laughs> Man, if you throw your money around like that, you'll
3: have nothing
1: left for a rainy day. <laughs> hey, before we get to Bob Marshall, let's get serious about Uvalde. The need for assault weapon reform. President Biden did talk about that. He's upset. So am I. Look, machine guns have been regulated for a long time. We can get rid of assault weapons. We can't have a country, we can't have a state where the number one cause of death for children
7: are guns. Machine guns have been federally regulated for nearly 90 years, and this is still a free country. This isn't about taking to anyone's rights. It's about protecting children. It's about protecting families. It's about protecting whole communities. It's about protecting our freedoms to go to school, to a grocery store, to a church, without being shot and killed. According to new data just released by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, guns are the number one killer of children in the United States of America. The number one killer.
1: So we need to ban assault weapons. It's the right thing to do.
7: I agree with Joe Biden, don't you? Over the last two decades, More school-age children have died from guns than on-duty police officers and active-duty military combined. Think about that. More kids than on-duty cops killed by guns. More kids than soldiers killed by guns. For God's sake, how much more carnage are we willing to accept? How many more innocent American lives must be taken before we say enough, enough? I know that we can't prevent every tragedy, but here's what I believe we have to do. Here's what the overwhelming majority of American people believe we must do. Here's what the families in Buffalo and Uvalde in Texas told us we must do. We need to ban assault weapons in high-capacity magazines. And if we can't ban assault weapons, then we should raise the age to purchase them from 18 to 21. Strengthen background checks, enact safe storage law and red flag laws. Repeal the immunity that protects gun manufacturers from liability. Address the mental health crisis, deepening the trauma of gun violence and as a consequence of that violence. Let's do
1: reinstate the assault weapons ban. These kind of weapons of war have no place being sold to 18-year-olds or 58-year-olds. Nobody needs it. I don't care if you have raccoons or feral pigs. Use a shotgun.
7: We should reinstate the assault weapons ban in high-capacity magazines that we passed in 1994 with bipartisan support in Congress and the support of law enforcement. Nine categories of semi-automatic weapons were included in that ban like AK-47s and AR-15s. And in the 10 years it was law, mass shootings went down. But after Republicans let the law expire in 2004 and those weapons were allowed to be sold again, mass shootings tripled. Those are the facts. A few years ago, the family of the inventor of the AR-15 said he would have been horrified to know that its design was being used to slaughter children and other innocent lives, instead of being used as a military weapon on the battlefields, as it was designed. That's what it was dying for. Enough. Enough. We should limit how many rounds a weapon can hold. <clears throat> Why, in God's name, should an ordinary citizen be able to purchase an assault weapon that holds 30-round magazines that let mass shooters fire hundreds of bullets in a matter of minutes.
1: When we come back, we'll be joined by Bob Marshall, who wants to be in the Colorado State House to fight for common sense gun reform and to fight Trumpism. Kind of the same fight. After this message, enjoy Bob Marshall. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor, Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life.
5: So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's gonna happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's gonna go, you know who's gonna get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the, the smooth transition of power.
1: That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have
5: the care.
1: There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days?
5: Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720 394 6887. And again, that's 720 394 6887. Or you can go online to Michael Bailey Law com, And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks,
1: Michael. I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. There's a great new Colorado law. It allows victims, as far back as January 1, 1960, to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims.
7: Welcome to Craig's Lawyers Lounge.
1: I am so excited to welcome my next guest to Craig's Lawyers Lounge. He's been an attorney out of an Ivy League law school, Cornell. I respect him a lot. He's a Marine and he was a Republican, but Donald Trump cured him of that. He lives in Douglas County. And he's gotten active, especially in the Highlands Ranch. Bob Marshall, thanks for coming on the show.
0: Well, thanks for having me, Craig.
1: Let's start with your background. Is it true that uh, you are a Marine?
0: Yes, once a Marine, always a Marine.
1: How did you get into that line of work?
0: Well, I always wanted to be in the military. And when I had to apply, I had some medical issues. And the Marine Corps was the ones who were more than happy to find a way to get me in. So I joined up with them and went to ROTC and went through then to OCS and TBS and never got out. Stayed as long as they let me. I was 28 years, 19 active, 9 reserve. Now you are a Colorado guy. Tell everybody where you grew up. Uh, Evergreen, born in St. Joe's, and but spent my whole life growing up in Evergreen. Now when you grew up in Evergreen,
1: is that do you consider that part of Metro Denver?
0: we didn't at the time. Now we, I think it is, but no, back then it was uh, kind of separate and it was wonderful because you go 30 minutes one way, you're in bear country and 30 minutes down the other way and you can have everything in a big city.
1: I think it's cool, but I'm a Southeast Denver guy. Thanks for coming out Southeast to visit with me. We've got Hamden in common. Is it true you're out in the Highlands Ranch and you've taken the remarkable step of running for the state house?
0: Yeah, uh, House District 43, which is totally encompassed by Highlands Ranch.
1: That's neat. What are the boundaries out there?
0: Uh, Like I said, it's totally contained within Highlands Ranch. I think we're missing just uh, the south borders of backcountry and some pieces off on the other side. Highlands Ranch is about 110,000 people, and the House districts are 85,000.
1: Now, Douglas County, uh, that's Highlands Ranch, right? Highlands Ranch is the northern edge of Douglas County?
0: Right. I think about a third of the entire population lives there in Douglas County and Highlands Ranch. And
1: how does Highlands Ranch vote?
0: It's historically been uh, very conservative, but the 2020 election, Biden actually won by a couple hundred votes, and uh, Crow won by a couple hundred votes. It's no longer in Crow's district, but uh, they were quite uh, happy that uh, you know there was just that tw- little bit of twinge that was showing you know, the Democrats have a chance to win now and there,
1: right. But I think I know what tipped the balance out in the Highlands Ranch that last election. It was a guy who was walking the major intersection and uh, campaigning nonstop with sincerity. And I think that guy was you. But let's not get too far ahead of this story. I admire you because you've stood up several times for your country. I think you've been in the Marines for the better part of 30 years did you do foreign deployments?
0: Yeah, I wound up, well, I went to Thailand. <laughs> That's where I met my wife. And then, Nice. Yeah, then uh, Iraq and um, Afghanistan, Anbar in Iraq and Helmand Province in Afghanistan.
1: And you're a smart guy, not only an evergreen, a high education, but you went to Georgetown. That's good school. What did you study there?
0: I was in the School of Foreign Service, so I got... Uh, basically a humanities degree. I didn't know what we were really learning at the time. It seemed like a smattering of a lot of stuff. But it turned out uh, it was just totally focused to pass the foreign service exam, which is actually very difficult. But people coming out of that school just score extremely high because we were learning exactly what we needed to learn to pass it.
1: Now, when you were going through Georgetown, unlike most undergraduates who wonder, what am I going to do next? If you're an ROTC and they're paying denies tuition money to go to Georgetown, what was the obligation they expected out of you?
0: Uh, it was a four-year payback uh, at the time, four years active and four years reserve. So it was a eight-year commitment, supposedly. When we came out that uh, time, though, we were in a big downsizing. I know a lot of the Army ROTC guys were actually given the option just to go reserves the whole time if they wanted.
1: But you come out and you are immediately an officer. That's kind of cool, right?
0: Yeah, well, it's not immediate. For the Marine Corps, you still had to go through OCS, and you still had to go through uh, TBS, but yeah. yeah.
1: But eventually, you get to start bossing people around?
0: Yeah, I don't look at it as bossing people around. Hopefully, you're leading people around.
1: I understand you were a pretty good shot and the captain of the shooting team. Is that true?
0: Well, uh, base shooting teams, uh, one in Iwakuni that uh, fired in the Far East regionals, and then I was the team captain Matzig 90 in Millington that fired in the Eastern Regionals. So they have Eastern, Western, Far East.
1: So what does the captain do? Uh, decide who competes where? Coach the team up? Are you a player coach?
0: Well, it's really, to be honest, it's mostly uh, an administrative position, taking care of everything for the team you know, getting them out there, all that. And every team had to have at least one sergeant and below and one officer. You know, there were requirements, and I was the officer with the group.
1: Well, we're going to talk about guns and shooting. Were you good at shooting a gun?
0: I was good enough to be on the team and the captain of the team. So, yes, I was pretty good.
3: All
1: right. You're modest, too. But that's the way most leaders are. So there you are, an officer and a gentleman. Are you going to see this new Maverick Top Gun movie? Does that appeal to you?
0: yeah I mean, it's an action movie and you know people go to those big movies just to have fun. it looks like a fun movie, so of course everything in there's not exactly true to life, but yeah, it's great great fun, I'm sure
1: all right, but you went to law school was that great fun or it had to be fun for the government to pay for it again
0: well, I was actually uh one of these things where I had paid for it myself, the tuition because uh the Marine Corps had two programs, the paid and unpaid program, and if you went in the paid program, they wouldn't pay for a school that was more than $10,000 a year.
1: Oh, <laughs> I take all that back?
0: Yeah, so... Um, so you it,
1: paid for your Ivy League education? I did, yeah. Cornell, that's a cool law school. Ithaca, New York, Did you've traveled all over this great country after leaving Evergreen.
0: Yeah, pretty much stayed in the state for 18 years, almost never leaving, and yeah, then went everywhere you could go for like the next uh, 18.
1: So were you a military lawyer for a while?
0: I was. That's was kind of the payback. So uh, as soon as I finished uh, law school for the Marine Corps, then I spent three years on active duty um, doing defense work, and then I was the station judge advocate in Iwakuni. Gosh, Japan. what
1: a varied career. And I know you ended up in Denver at one of the biggest and at the time most prestigious law firms, Gibson Dunn. I know there's been a lot of shakeups, but tell everybody about your time with big law firm in Colorado.
0: Well, that was real interesting. I got to do a lot with um, them. I actually defended—we did the appeal for the largest punitive damages action in Colorado history at the time for one individual. Uh, got to do some real nice pro bono work, too, and some white-collar stuff that was real interesting with the FDA. I— they have strict liability laws with the FDA, and I, you know, hadn't seen strict liability criminal laws ever before, which were, you know, quite interesting. Which there's a good reason for it, um, but yeah, it was a different world.
1: Yeah. And let me tell you, they don't hire dummies at those firms. They get top class people. A lot of them were federal appellate court clerks, and I believe you were Bob Marshall for a legendary judge Siler out in the Sixth Circuit. Tell everybody about that. Was that an important part of your life?
0: Yeah, that was probably one of the best experiences of my entire life in southeast Kentucky under Judge Siler. He was just the epitome of what uh, any judge should be. And it was fun being a Judge Siler clerk, because anytime you went to the courthouses in Cincinnati, all the guards loved him. Everyone knew him and loved him. Um, so as soon as you just had the aura around you, and this may be a little tangent I didn't t- discuss before, but... They had an AUSA slot open up right when I was leaving, and I asked Siler's uh, secretary, "Well, you think they would consider me? You know, being an outsider?" And she just laughed and said, "Well, send in your resume." So I sent it in on a Friday, and on Monday morning I got a call from the U.S. Attorney said, "Get up here Tuesday morning." So I go up there, and it turns out the U.S. Attorney at the time had been one of Judge Siler's clerks. The uh, you know, first assistant U.S. Attorney there was a Judge Siler clerk. The head of the criminal law division had gotten his job like 35 years earlier from then US attorney judge Siler so it was just like a huge coaching tree out there where you know all the yeah and they said yeah we know what kind of people judge Siler picks to clerk for him so we don't need to know anything else so were you a
1: prosecutor
0: not then. I was a prosecutor in Denver for a while. For,
1: okay. I thought maybe you got a job as an AUSA. No,
0: I, I made the choice to come home to Colorado. All right. which was, one. Yeah, which was very difficult because I loved our time in Kentucky. Well, I
1: looked up Siler, and his dad was a Kentucky congressman. That probably helps the political aspect. He had a military background, right? Navy. So there's yep. an affinity in hiring. And he got appointed first by Gerald Ford, a Republican. And then by George H.W. Bush to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, where you got hired. So I bet you were a Republican, too.
0: Oh, I I was. Yeah. And when you tell that one story, there's one little nugget there that you left out. I don't know if you saw it, but Judge Seiler's father you know, served in World War II and Korea as a frontline uh, combat man. But uh, he was the only Republican congressman to vote against the Tonkin Resolution, and um, which he could have taken a lot of heat for. But, you know, I asked Judge Siler about that once before, and he said, yeah, everyone forgot, forgave him because they knew he was just doing the right thing in his own mind. Turned out he was right later on.
1: Yeah, after so many Americans lost their lives. Uh, and that's fascinating. I did miss that part. But uh, what we're saying is that clerking for Judge Siler is a significant thing especially in that part of the world. But throughout the federal court system, this guy is known. And there's a community of former law clerks, and they're usually like-minded. And you guys can't see him, but he's here in the studio. Bob looks like a Republican in a way. I don't know what a Republican looks like, but he doesn't have long hair. You've never been a hippie. Yeah, clean shaver. You're straight-laced, right? (laughs) You don't drink, or, or, or you have no vices, right?
0: I, I have one vice because uh, Gunny, when I first showed up at my first duty station, actually after a bit said, Marshall, what's your problem? You don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't chase women, you don't gamble. said, every Marine has to have a bad habit. I said, well, all right, I'll start drinking coffee. And I got a horrible coffee habit. So.
1: But that's good for you. The exactly <laughs> four cups. I drink a lot.
0: Yeah, I do more than four cups.
1: I've covered Alan Berg a lot on my show because he fascinates me. And according to his biography, and I've talked to his ex-wife, 100 cups of coffee a day. Now you say, come on, that's not possible. Anyway, how much do you think you drink coffee-wise?
0: Oh, probably 12 or 14, nowhere near 100. Do you
1: have a cutoff point where you stop drinking caffeine during the day?
0: No, that's bad. I have Three o'clock
1: for me. And I drink half cap. That way I can drink twice as much. Yeah. Have you seen those Keurigs with half-cap?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't tried them, though. What are
1: you, full rich? I mean, the dark stuff?
0: Uh, I'm pretty bad because I'll take anything, whatever's available.
1: Oh, um, boy, I'm, that uh, full-strength Starbucks gives me a headache, but... Yeah. Uh, and don't you think McDonald's has excellent coffee?
0: I do. I actually stop and get their dollar coffee. I should get, am right. I plugging them?
1: <laughs> no. No, it's okay. Get their <laughs> but dollar it's, coffee. Yeah, it's, it's, it's my favorite app. If you ever want to find out if I disappeared, check my McDonald's app because yeah. it's I, incredible.
0: Yeah, I got one three months ago, which was actually the worst thing that ever happened to me because— right it's such a good deal i know (laughs)
1: and on french fries they give you holy cow is that that's the top 10 food would we agree on that
0: yeah and you can't turn it down it's like well it's free let me have it. i'm telling
1: you if you were in the most fancy restaurant and somebody came around and had a plate and there's the golden fries you'd probably go for that over the escargot or anything else right yeah i would
0: yeah 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 yeah, especially it, some kind of foo-foo stuff. With, right,
1: yeah. while it's hot. So when no. you travel the world, um, what's that like? Uh, I, I, I'm amazed. And, and, and let's just tell everybody what a do-gooder you are before we get into politics, which is kind of you know, partisan. And by the way, Joe O'Day is committed to be on my show, Kyle Clark next week. We entertain all kinds of people, people who stand up when they're called on. And that's part of being in the military. You agree to stand up, to fight battles, but then when you see something wrong, are you going to do something about it? A lot of people don't, but Bob Marshall does, and it's the 100-day anniversary of Putin's invasion of Ukraine as we speak, June 3rd for our show, June 4th. I have never seen such an atrocity in my adult lifetime as the leader of a superpower just trying to wipe out another country. And here I am railing against it. I had a lot of shows about it, people from Poland, people from Ukraine. We sent over supplies, but you went, my friend. Tell everybody your thoughts on Ukraine and why you had to get so personally involved.
0: Well, it disturbed me. I mean, I could tell how I wound up getting there. At the end stage. Oh,
1: but start about what's up with you that you need to do something. Why you?
0: Well, why not? I mean, that's sometimes you feel, you know, you just have to do it. I mean, you say I'm a do gooder, but I really don't. I mean, I'm not out at soup kitchens and every day looking for stuff. But yeah, when you see something there that you can do something, and I had the background in civil affairs and governance and police transition team leader on the Alkine border. So I was used to getting stuff done in chaotic environments. Um, so I thought I could do something, didn't know what I could do. Uh, but one of my fellow law clerks went out there. A
7: Siler law clerk.
0: Right. Well, exactly. Like I said, the U.S. attorney said they know what kind of people Siler picks. So uh, I asked him, what are you doing? He says, well, I speak Russian. I'm going to go help. I said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I'm going to go help. And I was like, well, he said, come on with me, Bob. And I said, well, I want a plan. You don't just show up because you're just sucking resources off other people and not doing anything. And then like two weeks later, I see this uh, picture from Easter that I guess was published worldwide in many newspapers of Ben in this big pink bunny outfit, welcoming these kids across the, you know, they're running to That's him. That's your
1: Russian speaking, Tyler Buddy?
0: Right. In a big pink, and became known as Ben the Bunny. And he would sit out there and just welcome all the kids, which was terrific for their morale, you know, running from their homes and bombs and coming to a new country having no idea if they're going to be welcomed or what's going to happen. And you got this giant pink Easter bunny, you know, open arms, giving them all hugs as soon as they come across the bridge.
1: And so that bunny idea, it'll work one day a year. And I don't know if you would fit in that bunny costume, especially since you've been visiting McDonald's. So given that plan's gone, what was your next move?
0: Well, it's like, well, if Ben could do something, he actually wound up doing it for weeks. You know, really? Yeah, it wasn't just an Easter thing. He, well, they
1: have a later Easter, yeah, so that, you can extend it, right, yeah, in exa- the Orthodox faith. And
0: that's how he wound up going a whole week in it because of the separate ones, and then he just kept doing it, so he was doing it all the time. But uh, I forgot the question. No, the question <laughs> is,
1: you, you didn't emulate the bunny deal, but you still went.
0: What did you do? Well, again, I wanted to do something productive, and I'm on this advisory board for the High Reliability Organization Council called HROC and they had a background in uh, a lot of infection control and the like, and I talked to the chairman and said, well, I plan on going out there and uh, you know seeing what I can do and take, and he said, well, we want to get involved too. We really want to help. So I went under their umbrella, and I was going to do a refugee assessment at the border on Metca. To see what we could do to help you know in terms of uh
1: is metka in ukraine or poland
0: poland it's uh the transit point it's the only pedestrian traffic point i think there's like four major ones i was told but metka takes car and pedestrian traffic so what
1: you just got a plane flight one way to warsaw or krakow or germany well the you get there
0: yeah i flew uh denver to wars excuse me denver to munich and the German police gave me all sorts of hate and discontent. That was I don't know why, but it, I guess it's flattering to be considered a person of concern still. And then uh, flew there from to Warsaw, uh, stayed overnight one night, which was good because Lufthansa lost my luggage, and uh, got a rental car and went out to the Medca um, border transit station. I bought uh, you know a bunch of solar panels and solar generators and some phones to see uh, you know just if. Those could be needed and then hooked up with some of the NGOs there to see what was going on. The assessment though, the EU is just doing a fabulous job on taking care of the refugees. They've made the conscious choice not to have, you know, refugee camps with all their attendant problems. So they're dispersing the refugees as quick as they can. And I was expecting at least a few thousand in you know some kind of camp because they were saying they were getting tens of thousands right. almost an hour. But uh, they got it down to a science now. So they get these cards, and uh, identity cards, and they get free public transportation, free health care, 200 euros a month, and they can work. And it's good for six months, and it'll be renewed if the th- uh, it, things don't get better. Obviously, they're not getting better. So you know they got a whole year of this uh, very nice largesse from the EU to make sure all the Ukrainians are taken care of. So there wasn't a lot of huge issues. Uh, there was trash issues and a, a few others, but uh, and the border was just backed up. So at that point, uh, one of my colleagues in Kiev, uh, who came out to meet me in Poland, uh, said, "Well, why don't you come to Kiev? We got a lot of problems out there, and the biggest problems are out on the front." So I said, "All right, let's go." So we got on a train and hopped on to go. What Kiev. are you
1: crazy? Going into a war zone?
0: Well, it's not everyone thinks. Oh my God, a war zone. But I mean, there's war zones. Yeah, it's quiet in most places. It's not. You know, we right,
1: weren't... but you're still going toward Kiev, and then you went up, as I understand it, at the northern suburbs, the place where they tried to break through to take Kiev. What what happened there? You're a military guy. How do you assess it?
0: Well, no, we. I, there was another colleague there who's Ukrainian, Igor. And Doug, who was our uh, main contact, he's a very well-known documentary filmmaker at Hollywood, and he's sh- he'd been making documentary films in war zones for decades, so he showed up to do one in Ukraine and was embedding with Igor's squad and told him, the, I'm just not going to document you all dying, give me a weapon, and he wound up embedding and fighting with them for the next 30 days, but they stopped him at the north, and Igor's Group was part of the one group that stopped the Russians at you know, the first time coming into Kiev.
1: And did they t- did they explain to you how they did it?
0: Well, the main part was, I guess the the Russians are, were just terrible. It's just the tactics were just horrible, inept. Yes, I mean that. We I asked Igor. It's like, well, what were they? You know, there was like this lane that they were coming down. And he's a whole column of tanks, which, uh, you know, it's like tank warfare 101. What the hell are you doing in an urban environment stacking tanks like that? Is You take out the first one and you take out the rear one and the others are sitting ducks. And he's Igor was like, I have no idea. They, I don't know what they were doing. Um, and he showed me pictures and videos and they were horrendous. It looked like Stalingrad, you know, burning buildings, bodies everywhere, tanks blown up. Um, so the Russians are being super stupid. Yeah, they were being super stupid.
1: And what about the Ukrainians? Are they smart? Are they good at this? And if so, how did they get good?
0: Well, I think they've gotten really good for two reasons. One, after 2014, when they lost Crimea, a lot of people stepped up, especially us, and gave them quite a bit of really good training, and they're doing everything textbook by the book. And then two, you know, they are fighting for their country. You know, They have the land that the Russians just... Don't. The Russian troops' hearts aren't in this thing at all. The Ukrainians completely are. In fact, Igor's squad was just a bunch of civilians that got together to help defend the country. You know, a pharmacist, a lawyer, an engineer.
1: Right. But it's a first-world environment over there in Ukraine. Did you feel that? People are educated. They have the Internet. Oh, yeah. They're sophisticated to a degree that maybe the Russians are not with their... More prohibited press and freedoms.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I could say that because I didn't meet a lot right. Rus- Russians and I didn't, you know, go over the whole country or. But anything. But
1: that's probably going too far. I mean, why are you taking sides, Ukraine versus Russia? Why are you involved in it?
0: Well, it's a big bad bully picking on uh, another country, and Putin, of course, and Russia are. Behind a lot of the authoritarian problems throughout the world, you know, our own re- Republican Party was, you know, putting them up as some kind of exemplar, and some, like Hungary. Some yeah. people, some yeah.
1: Douglas County people, right? So we're going to get to that. But I, I've always been muddled in my politics. I'm independent. Ask me an issue, I'll give you my answer. I'm pro-choice. I'm pro-gun control. But I saw it and obtained a Denver death penalty. I believe that uh, we can coddle criminals to our detriment. That's a problem. So give me an issue. I'll give you an answer. And so accordingly, I voted for Democrats, Republicans. But right now, I just see one issue. And that's why I'm activated. And I used to say to Dan Kaplis, you know, I think I can debate you on abortion, but I can't match your passion because it's one of your top issues. It's not my top 10. I probably do a degree the same with gun control, although I've been passionate about that in my life. But I'm activated, not abortion. Now I can match the passion because it's going to affect my life, my kid's life, all of that. But the biggest thing that's going to affect it is this encroaching tyranny, autocracy, Putinism, Trumpism. Now we are going to get political. I see it as mobsterism versus the rule of law freedom versus tyranny, and Putin first gets rid of the media, right? No free press. We've seen this before, enemy of the people. That's what every tyrant says. And Putin now wiping out maternity hospitals and trying to kill kids. It's like, screw you, man. I'm against you. I'm going to invest my own money to give to Greg Gold, my last guest, to take over to Ukraine. You used your own money. You went on your own dime. This is the front line of a battle that America is facing. It's the age-old battle of uh, tyrants versus free people, King George versus uh, the first Americans. Is that the way you see it?
0: Yeah, I don't uh, as apocalyptic as you do, but uh, yeah, I mean it's that issue. You know, in late nineteen nineties, they were saying, you know, the death of history. Well, history's coming back. You know, we're right back to the cycle again.
1: Well, good. Talk me down. That when you went over to Ukraine, did you did you pick up arms over there? Did they let you? Or? No,
0: I was asked if I wanted to go out to the do a supply run with them. Um, But I was being a mature adult, and as much as I'd like to be, you know, a 20-year-old kid again, that wasn't my place, and it would have been just war tourism. But I brought them the—they were thrilled with those solar panels and the solar generators. Um, They could just do a lot with them. Because it's a citizen's war, civilian war, and they're communicating with cell phones. They're out in all these remote areas and getting, uh, you know, their phone's charged up. You can just slap these things out on a—get them charged directly or— charge up the generator and charge them later.
1: Now, you said I went a little too far, and I like that, a challenge. But I see the Republicans prevailing nationally in the midterms. I hope you get elected in CD43. But I also see the possibility of Donald Trump regaining power, impeachment against Biden, all that kind of bullshit, and then Trump getting power, support for Ukraine going away support for NATO going away, maybe Europe threatened, eventually America. That's too doomsday for you? Stop me where I went a little too far.
0: Yeah, that's the worst case scenario, and that's what the scenario looks like, unless people stand up and start doing something. Uh, but That's I,
1: why I like you, because you're a stand-up guy, and you've been activated by Donald Trump. Is that true?
0: Yeah, I think so. <laughs>
1: Tell us about your journey. Rock-ribbed Republican, Republican parents, all of that. When did you feel like, "Uh uh-oh, it's not for me?
0: Well, with Mr. Trump, it got up to the point, you know, again, it's, when's the... I mean,
1: let's establish your Republican fides. Did you ever participate in party politics? Were you ever a delegate or anything like that?
0: Yeah, I was a National Convention delegate, and uh, I was actually asked to run for office in Tennessee when I was there. So, yeah, and I gave thousands of dollars to Republican... Parties, you know, candidates and issues. So yeah, I was a uh, died-in-the-wool Republican, but just yeah, I, they always asked me. I think they were always a little suspicious because I'd say nice things about Democrats. I'd say nice things about anyone.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're a nice guy. It kind of belies the image of a Marine, but you're full of contradictions, and nobody should mistake your soft tone for an unwillingness to take risks or engage in action as opposed to just words. You'll get up and you'll do things like running for office. But I want to know more about what was it about Donald Trump that made you leave your lifelong affiliation with the Republican Party?
0: Well, the final straw with Mr. Trump was when he attacked Captain Khan's mother from during the Democratic Convention. To me, that was just A bridge way too far at the end. If you want to be the commander-in-chief or are the commander-in-chief and the mother of a dead soldier wants to blame you, kick you, spit on you, you sit there and take it like a man. You don't attack the mother. And the mother didn't even say anything against him. You know, She just stood by the side of uh, the father, did nothing. And he went out and attacked her. I was like, there's no way I could ever support this man. But then the Republican Party, I thought, would just come back to their senses, and it didn't happen. Um, So things kept building up, building up. And again, the straw that broke the camel's back was when the Republican Party kept backing Roy Moore in Alabama for the Senate seat. After all that stuff came out about him, um, that was, again, the breaking point for me. And it was real hard, but I pulled, I think it was December 9th. For people who don't recall,
1: Judge Moore, who's a Christian nationalist, I think that's a fair way to describe him. That's the way he came to fame, and then he came to further fame when it came out that while he was a prosecutor, I believe, a young prosecutor, well, not that young, like in his 30s, he would be trolling for teenage girls and sometimes succeeding in wooing them into his clutches. And it's creepy. And he even got banned from that shopping mall. Yet the Republicans said, he's our guy. And Trump said it too, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And just a few years earlier, you know, what was it, Obama in his Senate campaign against Fitzgerald that he won, the gop yanked the plug on fitzgerald for just a really you know almost you know now it's almost quaint sex scandal with his own wife so yeah the how much they've degenerated was just amazing that they'd support someone like that
1: right but we found out they could go a lot lower so what did you do you you were smart enough to not vote for trump in 2016 right and uh, did you vote for hillary
0: I did not. I abstained on the presidency and filled well, out everything else.
1: Were you, like me, a little worried about Hillary and maybe she's corrupt? Or
0: Yeah, but uh, I'm one of these guys, too, that uh, I can have a respect for corrupt, competent people yes. uh, that, you know, that still can get things done, even though you're, you're like, okay, I know you're doing some shady stuff, but you get shit done and you're doing you know, the Lord's work your own way. But yeah, I didn't like Hillary. What do
1: you think happened in 2016? Do you think Russia helped Trump? We just had that verdict this week in uh, the trial. The lawyer got acquitted. I mean, to me, it's obvious that Russia helped, helped Putin set it in Helsinki. Yeah, we're rooting for him. Yeah, he we, Hillary talks shit about us. We don't like her. I thought that's one of the few times he was being honest. But I just read people and I think Putin has something on Trump. Do you?
0: Considering his long history with Russia, yeah, there's probably a very good chance. Uh, there was that fantastic frontline report on Putin to our group that uh, looked at the world through Putin's eyes, which was very enlightening. Once you, yeah, I saw that, I was like, then you understand his worldview. And it wasn't so much support for Trump, but uh, it really was concern about Clinton because if people forget, she was all behind a Secretary of State, all the Arab Spring and overthrowing governments. Right. And people forget how close the Russian government, right. you know, they had hundreds of thousands protesting. Um, how close the Russian government actually, people didn't know at the time, it came to being overthrown. And Putin knew that, you know, he was there, and he blamed Clinton for it, for stirring all this up. So it was. And
1: Putin pictured himself being Qaddafi. Yeah. Exactly, yes.
0: yeah. So there was no way Hillary Clinton could win.
1: All right, but guys like you and me are dime a dozen. I was... Uh... I, I voted for Trump. Honestly, if I didn't do it on radio, I, I would deny it. But I did. <laughs> I did. And then I realized the error of my ways. And you were a Republican. And you turned away. You didn't vote for him. You didn't vote for Hillary. And with all due respect, there are lots of people like the both of us. Okay, But you went a step further. And that's why you're here. Because once again, you stood up. And there was one event that happened, and I remembered this speech, and during our pre-interview, you brought it to mind. It was at Mount Rushmore during the pandemic. What was it, the 4th of July? And they pretended like the masks was, uh, you know, wearing a mask, that's a conspiracy to win the election. And Fauci's in on it, all that conspiracy theory crap. And then just some more belligerent talk by Trump, but you're the guy who got activated by it. What was it about that speech that got
0: you? It was the division, the attacking other Americans as un-American. Uh, that was just really too far. Because again, I wasn't a liberal. Um, I'm not a progressive, but those are your fellow Americans. You don't treat them that way. I uh, you know, just go back, You know, I almost get misty-eyed when I think about Dole and Anunu. Uh, you know, they were different parties and constantly on different sides, but how could you hate each other when you got almost uh, seriously wounded within you know, miles of each other?
1: Daniel Inouye from Hawaii, yeah, and right. Bob Dole. Dalt- yeah. yeah, let's play a little portion of that speech from South Dakota to give a taste of what got Bob worked up. Me too, but Bob took action.
4: Angry mobs are trying to tear down statues of our founders to face our most sacred memorials and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities. Many of these people have no idea why they are doing this, but some know exactly what they are doing. They think the American people are weak and soft and submissive. But no,
1: the American people are strong and proud. Do you notice how Trump always accuses the other side of things that he's really doing? He talks about left-wing fascism when really, to me, the only fascism I've ever seen comes from the right, Mussolini, et cetera, not that the communists can't be terrible, but the way he talks about other people, he's really talking about his own group, and when you put January 6th, what we know now behind it, anyway, what was it again? Uh, Mount Rushmore. Have you been there?
0: No, I actually have never been in Mount Rushmore. Oh, University.
1: it's cool. It's only a day's drive from Evergreen or Denver or Highlands Ranch. I encourage it. But on fascism, what do you think Trump and what he had to say there?
0: Well, again, it was the division and finding an enemy to galvanize other people against other people um, for the pursuit of power to you know put yourself above others. I mean, it was just something that just really rankled me. Um,
1: And now we know that he was thinking about winning the election, even if he didn't, through cheating and claiming it was rigged.
4: In our schools, our newsrooms, even our corporate boardrooms, there is a new far-left fascism that demands absolute allegiance. If you do not speak its language, perform its rituals, recite its mantras and follow its commandments then you will be censored, banished, blacklisted, persecuted and
1: punished. okay so I got worked up about that but I didn't take any action. you did what did you do Bob Marshall?
0: Well it was the night before I think he gave Fourth of July he gave the speech and we had nothing going on the next day because of the pandemic. So I just got a huge American flag and a big Biden for president sign. And I had a big straw hat I had just to keep the sun off my face and, you know, my back. And I went down to the intersection and just started marching around the intersection with those, the the flag and the, the sign. I did it for about six hours in the heat, took a few breaks, um...
1: And you developed a bit of a routine, am I right? You push the button, you wait for the walk signal, you walk, you push the button, you wait for the walk signal. Do I have it right?
0: Yeah, it became, I almost, I could time it exactly when they were going to come. I almost didn't, you had know, I'd always look for the traffic, of course, but I knew exactly when the, you know, walk signals would come up.
1: So you did it on the 4th of July, six hours. That's a lot of action. Did people get mad? Did people support you? Did you like it? You came back, you must have liked
0: it. Well, yeah, it was a mixed bag, but I had quite a few people come up and were very excited, you know, saying, oh my God, we thought we were the only ones in Highlands Ranch, you know, because it's a very conservative area. Um, And boy, you, you gave us hope. So I started going out every day for about two hours on the weekdays and then four to six on Saturday and Sunday. So it was a daily routine.
1: Now, were you working during this time? I was, yeah. Uh, Tell everybody your job if you can. Maybe it's top secret.
0: No, no. It's top secret on what I was doing, but I was working with the large business international litigation section of the IRS.
1: And you are a licensed attorney. You keep it active in New York and active in Colorado. You could pay the fee, get it active here anytime. But for your IRS work, you only need one license, right? Right. Well, good. You you (laughs) are in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, but one day, beget another, and the schedule, did people start joining you, or talking to you, or trying to hit you?
0: Well, (laughs) that's a big jump in the time frame, but... uh, Take it slow. Well, yeah, there was a bunch of Trump supporters that started coming out to counter me, um, and the first group, at least i met, uh, they were good people. We wound up, uh, you know, becoming almost friends and joking and laughing and I'd do my thing and they'd stay on one corner and I'd only hit them one corner at a time because I'd walk the intersection. But then groups started coming separately that were kind of nasty. And there was, uh, the cops came a few times. There were people that literally tried to hit me with their car a few times too. And again, I know the difference between like a dog being kicked or tripped over uh, you know, I was out there and a lot of times almost got hit by negligence, but there were four or five that were trying to make a point by, you know, swerving into me. Uh, so things started getting more heated and heated and then, uh, finally came up to, uh,
1: well, Did you try to have fun with these guys? Was there humor involved at any point?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, well, one thing was getting nasty where quite a few of them would get up right in my face and scream and yell and say I was a communist, I was a pedophile, I was a socialist. But the thing that got to me the most was, you know, saying, I you know, can't carry the American flag, I should be carrying a communist flag, all that stuff, and saying I couldn't carry the American flag. And I was like, you know, the hell with you. I carried the American flag when I was 19 in Arlington Cemetery. Well, I was in a color guard and I was giving the flag on one knee to a dead Marines family in my forties. And you're telling me I can't carry this flag. It's like the hell with you. So I warned them and you know, jokingly said, you know, when Sora signs off in the expense report, I'm going to play a dirty trick if you don't quit this crap. And they'd laugh. Uh, so finally went out there one day and, uh, they started in again, you know, screaming at me literally in my face, a few of the nasty ones. So I walked back to my car and took off all my Biden stuff and put the American flag in the trunk and got out a MAGA hat, you know, a Trump hat, and a big Make America Great Again Trump 2020 sign and then a giant Confederate battle flag and went up to the corner to make the point. And they were not happy with that at all, but my point was made. I, you know, went up there for a few minutes and then went back to my vehicle. And then any time that they gave me uh, any problem the next week, I'd say, you want me to get the other flag? I'll get the other flag if you don't want me to carry this one. And they'd you know, calm down. Um, but then it came about a week and a half later, a week later, we were, I was out there doing my thing and there was a huge group of Trump supporters, like 40, van, uh, uh, loudspeaker, And I started doing my thing, as always, just walking. But then some BLM and Biden supporting teenagers ran up to me and asked if they could march with me, said, hey, we love you, and we want to walk with you. And I said, well, all right. I wasn't too thrilled with it, because there were teenage girls talking and yakking while we're going through the intersections, and one had an F Trump sign, handmade, and I tried to be a little more positive. But we were walking the intersections, and things were getting real nasty between the Trump supporters and the girls. And so I was waiting on a walk signal and hearing all this horrible stuff going on behind me. So I hit both walk signals, going to pick whichever one comes first. We get out of there. And we, you know, the one that goes back. So I said, Hey, come on girls. And we walked back to the other uh, corner and I told him, stay here. Um, There's too many of you. We don't want to be doing that. So we can keep them away from the Trump supporters. But two of the adult Trump supporters, women came over to the other side and started uh, really harassing the girls really bad. And, and then another one, um, you know, it was like, can't you go back to your own side? I brought them over here to get them away from you. And they're like, well, they came over to our side. I was, I was like, well, you're the adults. Why can't you just go back over there? Well, one of them was coughing in the faces of the teenagers purposely. You know, This is in the middle of the pandemic, uh, intentionally coughing on them. And so one of the girls finally coughed back and you know, made a comment and the Trump support girl just went ahead and took a swing at her, and a melee started. It was just ridiculous. And then uh, the melee finally b- broke up, and the deputy is right. See, there. I've
1: always called that a melee.
0: Melee, yeah. I think that's all right. Yeah, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. But uh,
1: maybe it's kind different at Cornell Law School. No. Nah, nah. Tell me about the melee.
0: Yeah, so, well, the melee happened, but we were only half a block from the sheriff's station, so there was always. Uh, sheriff's deputies going back and forth. So I, an off-duty one, or he was a planes close was right there and can immediately broke it up, had four of them sit down. Uh, and I waited a few minutes, see if they wanted to talk to me. He had nothing to say as far as I could see. So I went back up to the corner to get my flag and stuff. My American flag sitting there all broken and torn. So I was ticked. I was really angry. Uh, you know, because again, this was just gratuitous violence on these girls. And later I found out too, there was a call from a bystander in a car right at the intersection who called in, and you can hear it, that you know the Trump supporters were pushing the girls off the, the curb into the traffic. I mean, it was real dangerous. They wouldn't even let the girls up on the curb. They were pushing them out into the cars. Um, and they called into the sheriff's office saying, hey, this is getting serious. So I went down to my car and... Went ahead, put my Biden stuff away, and got out the American flag and the Trump sign again and went back up the The
1: American flag or the Confederate flag?
0: Well, I got the Confederate flag. Or because but,
1: your American flag was broken?
0: Yep. So I was going to make a, a point that you— With th- sarcasm? Right. Yeah, it was— uh, uh, But I, you
1: were kind of prescient there because this was mid-July 2020?
0: right. Oh, no, this was September 2020.
1: Oh, September twenty. You started in July, so now we're uh, through the summer, the legend. They started giving you a name, right?
0: Yeah, there was a couple names. Uh, it was really Biden Bob. Um, Biden guy was at first before they figured out my name. I, I had never done social media, so I had no idea— It was getting to be a thing in Highlands Ranch, but I'd have uh, like an SUV full of kids, teenagers pull up and just start chanting, Biden guy, Biden guy. So I knew it was getting around, but again, I had never done social media, so I had no idea how this (laughs) was—everyone was— So now we're
1: we're close to the election, September 2020, when your American flag gets broken, you put on the uh, sarcastic Trump, uh, I'll wear it. I'll wave a Trump sign and a Confederate flag. I guess my point was, that was what, three months before January 6th, when actual Trump supporters did carry the flags that you put out there
0: on Broadway in a Highland Trench well exactly that was the whole point was the satires these are the people because again not all Trump supporters you know are racist but for some reason it, and totalitarians or authoritarians but it seems weird that all racists and authoritarians are Trump supporters you know again you have that syllogism uh, right
1: I think uh, from my mind he encourages it but so you get on that uh, you have the Trump sign you have the American um, You have the Trump sign, you have the Confederate flag, you started doing your four-corner walk again?
0: Well, I tried. I went up to the corner and was doing the four more years, I was going to just walk the intersection like I always do, and there was four or five deputies all around me. Um, The BLM teenagers didn't recognize me with the other stuff, so they were all angry at me and just putting their signs up in my face, you know, like... Love or whatever, Um, but nobody took any you know action because I wasn't doing anything illegal. I was satirizing. Um, They thought I was a real Trump supporter, (laughs) waving that stuff. So I went up, hit the walk signal to go across to the intersection, and started you know right out into the crosswalk. And there was a deputy right there at the crosswalk when I stepped out. And then some individual from the Trump people came running out into the crosswalk, um, screaming at me to get back, get back, and I you know, looking like he was going to do something physically to me. And I told him, don't touch me. You know, don't you touch me. There's a cop right there. Don't touch me. Um, But he came up and, you know, swiped at my head and tried to grab the Confederate flag. Uh, And I just sidestepped him and just got around him real quick and then just kept walking. And I took like two or three steps. And all of a sudden, you know, I felt a hard impact on the back of my head. Um, You know, he had sucker punched me. Um, I turn around, he's right there, and so I hit him in the face, and he's trying to grab at the hat, so I hit him again, and this cop comes running up, grabs him, and they put him in handcuffs and took him back to the vehicle.
1: Because the cop saw it all?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, and you can hear him all on tape. The cop that arrested him didn't have body cam on him, but all of his other uh, individuals did, and the person who hit me actually had... uh, uh, a cell phone in his hand at the time, which he didn't give over to the cops when they asked. But uh,
1: Did you know this guy?
0: I had no idea who he was at the time.
1: Did you find out later who he is?
0: Yeah, yeah. He's, who is he? He's uh, a man named Stephen Peck, who was a school board member who was appointed. He was never elected. Douglas County School Board? Right. And then he was the vice chair. He is the vice chair right now of the uh, Douglas County Republican Party.
1: Wow. He got handcuffed, arrested?
0: Yeah, they put him in the back of the vehicle, squad vehicle. and Charged with assault? No. They came and asked me if I wanted to press assault charges. Uh, a corporal that knew me uh, said, hey, Bob, you want to press assault charges? And I said, thought about it for a while because I don't like to just do things you know, without thinking them through. And I asked, yeah, can I think about it? He's like, well, we really got to know now. So I said, yeah, this is getting out of hand. Um, and they asked me, you know, said, you're going to have to testify. You know that maybe. And yeah, I'm an attorney. I was like, yeah, I know. Um, well, did he just slap you or did he really clock you? Well, I felt a welt and I wound up uh, having to go to the emergency room later and was diagnosed with a concussion. So it was hard enough to do something. And again, what was uh, ridiculous is all the Trump supporters were lying through their teeth, of course, saying, I hit him first. I hit him first. I hit him first. Uh Well, then it turned out there was a dash cam, luckily, that caught the whole sequence. And it was clear I didn't hit him first. So now they're all saying all over the place, he didn't hit him that hard. He was just knocking his hat off. He didn't hit him that hard. It's like one lie to the next every time.
1: So I'm sure there's Mr. Peck got prosecuted by John Kelner on the 18th for assault. And you testified what the jury say?
0: No, it didn't get charged with assault. He was a big supporter of Kilner, from my understanding, and you know being with the GOP there. So uh, he wound up just having... We both got uh, disorderly conduct charges, which was ridiculous. They came to me and said, hey, our lieutenant just showed up. This is like 30 minutes later and I'm leaving. They told me, hey, Bob, everything's wrapped up. Go ahead and leave. And then come up and say, uh, our lieutenant just got on scene and he said, anyone that was involved in any altercation, everyone's getting a disorderly conduct. I was like, what the hell? You'll know I <laughs> was just defending myself. So they're like, well, you have to go to court. But Peck, it took me forever to find out what happened because uh, they went ahead and sealed his file immediately. Um, but he pled guilty to disorderly conduct, and they gave him a deferred judgment, which basically means it goes away and then they seal it.
1: Well, what about you? Surely you got your day in court, and no jury is going to convict you, because if you get sucker punched, you have a right to turn around and defend yourself. So what happened at your trial?
0: Oh, we didn't get to trial. They dragged it out for nine months, uh, Kellner's people trying to get me to plead at something, and it was ridiculous. And they wound up uh, dumping the trial, you know, dismissing all charges within three days before trial. And I, I actually was ticked, because I wanted to rip apart everyone you know in court, you know, with the videos and everything to show you know what actually happened and what people are saying was the opposite of what's right there on the videos.
1: Now, are you gonna rip them apart physically or you're talking like a lawyer
0: now? Yeah, right? lawyer talk, yeah, lawyer <laughs> talk.
1: But I don't blame you for being upset. And uh, you know, Bob Marshall will come back because a lot of this isn't over, but. You're a guy of action, and when you said on July 4th we didn't have anything going on, you're a husband, you're a father, so you're probably talking about your family during the pandemic. There weren't a lot of interaction, so why not walk an intersection to try to defeat Donald Trump and Trumpism from taking over America? Now, as a father, as a husband, were you concerned about douglas county schools did that catch your attention as well and did it before or after this school board member sucker punched you in the head
0: no it came much later uh, and it was a long process actually it started with dealing with the sheriff's department the douglas county sheriff's department and then dealing with the douglas county board of health when they well you know the douglas county board of county commissioners when they yanked themselves out of tri-county health which was ridiculous but then It was all about the mass in schools, which is the reason they yanked out of Tri-County Health. So I got interested in the school issues because of the Board of Health issues. And I got involved in a lawsuit with that. And that led me to being watching their board real carefully and going to the meetings. So when I started seeing a lot of flaky stuff going on with the board there, I got far more involved.
1: And uh, we know how that story ends. And let me see if I can sum it up. These four conservative board members changed the direction of Douglas County Schools. They were going to put in their own person and get rid of a popular superintendent, Corey Wise. They didn't do it properly because they told Corey Wise, we've made a decision. You need to leave of your own accord or we're going to do this, do that. They were supposed to hold an open meeting to make decisions like that. And a certain Douglas County resident named Bob Marshall said, you can't do it like this. You got a great lawyer, Steve Zansberg, you sued. District Court Judge Jeffrey Holmes said, you're right. Bob Marshall's right. Steve Zansberg's right. Douglas County Schools, you screwed up. Now Corey Wise is suing them. And uh, rather than just say, you know what, we did screw up, now they're spending a lot of money appealing. And
0: uh, well, and their insurance won't even cover it for them. You know, so, which is.
1: You know. So, you get to pay for it as a Douglas County taxpayer.
0: It's coming straight out of taxpayer money now.
1: So, that's a great story. And anybody can look it up. And I encourage you to do so. And it's ongoing. And Steve Sandsberg has been a guest in Craig's Lawyers Lounge. But I want to get to your campaign because. I think you can win in Highlands Ranch if you get enough attention, because tell us who you are running against.
0: Well, we don't know yet. There's two individuals in the GOP primary. One uh, is an older gentleman that has uh, a long history with the party, so he's the establishment favorite. Put $100,000 of his own money into the campaign. That's almost no donations on his own. And the other person is someone that uh, just showed up in August of 2020 to get away from uh, you know, the fascists in Arapahoe County that were making people wear masks. So she became one of the Moms of Liberty, and so she's pretty out there. Got, oh, and she got endorsed by the Rocky Mountain Gun Owners Association. So
1: we're talking you're going to run against a severe Trumper regardless, right?
0: Yeah, that's what it looks like.
1: And that's what I don't want. I don't think the people of Highlands Ranch want that
0: either. Do you? Yeah, I don't think they like extremism at all. You know, anyone in Highlands Ranch likes that.
1: And there is extremism in Douglas County. I've talked a lot about Joe Altman. He has this organization called FEC, Faith Economics, Commerce, something like that. They meet at Bandamere. They've got a pretty good rostrum. They raise a lot of money. Of course, it's sort of like a multi marketing scheme, people profit, but. They have power in Douglas County, you would agree, right?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: And and are these two people who are running against you at all affiliated with that?
0: I know that uh, the woman that isn't the establishment one that's like the Moms of Liberty has reached out to Oldman um, to kiss the ring and ask for his support. Um, I don't think the other individual, as far as I know, has, but— It appears that everyone in the GOP in Douglas County has to kiss that ring if they want to do anything.
3: Well,
1: here's my problem with Altman, who I never knew. I was shocked when he started having advertisements on 710 KNUS, where I worked, and George Brockler was having personal live interviews with him on his six to nine show on Saturday mornings. I'd never heard a business like that advertised before. And then He's doing a personal spot. I couldn't even understand what he's selling, but I understand he sold 84 grand of it to the Douglas County conservative school board candidates, backed big time by George Brockler, among others. So I go, hmm. But my biggest hmm is Joe Altman started the big lie out of Colorado. He picked on Eric Coomer. Said this guy from Dominion has rigged the election. Next thing you know, the Trump family is spreading it all around, including the big guy, and we've got Dominion in the crosshairs. And all I think happened is Altman made up an antifa call, and people took it seriously. And now democracy is on the precipice. So that's why I pay attention to Altman in Douglas County. And uh, I think the big lie is extremely dangerous to American democracy because look at it. The big lie led those Michigan, those wacky local people and some organized people like Roger Stone, Donald Trump, Peter Navarro, Joe Altman. They knew it was going to get violent. And it led to January 6th, which was the worst event I've seen as an adult. It felt like 9-11 to me, and if they don't hold people responsible, that's why I do this podcast, among other reasons. I think that Trumpism needs to be confronted, but you've taken it a step further. You're a Marine. You're running for public office. You're a lawyer. You're a Judge Seiler guy. What did January 6th mean to you?
0: Oh, it was atrocious. I mean, it was just, especially seeing that Confederate flag in the Capitol, yeah, that was just like, really, how is that possible? Um, yeah, it was it was a travesty, and the the lie that led to the travesty was even you know almost worse. And then when we find out all the facts that happened, I mean, on January sixth, yeah, I was irate. I couldn't, you know, it's amazing that uh, I couldn't believe they were standing down so easily. You know, they could have you know taken a lot more vigorous action. Um, But again, that's probably the military background in me rather than the policing aspect that you don't really want to, you know, letting property get damaged is better than letting people get hurt. But, you know, that's a different kind of property to try and stop the entire process of transferring power. Um,
1: And now you're running. How did that come about? What was it that you told you? I'm not just going to walk the corners. I'm going to become a Democrat. I'm going to run for office. Is it about defeating Trumpism?
0: No it's not all about I mean that mindset um, which seems to be very prevalent in Douglas County especially of uh, you know not wanting to follow the rule of law you know doing whatever we darn well please I've done quite a few times challenged the powers down there on things and a lot of times they're just totally clueless because no one's ever challenged them on their behavior you know they just have always done it that way and no one you know cares. Uh, so I care. <laughs> so uh, the place I thought I could have the most impact, I was actually asked for, to run for many different offices, but uh, you know this one made by far the most sense. Especially, uh, you know, the hierarchy of the Democratic Party asked to run for SD thirty, but I was like, well, there's less walking in HD forty three, so I think i ought to go with that one. I'm not that old, you know, young anymore. So,
1: well, you're not that old. What year did you graduate? Evergreen
0: High? 87.
1: All right. So you're a youngster in my book. You have a lot of energy, and you train for it by walking Broadway and the Highlands Ranch Parkway so frequently. Yeah. Did Was that exercise as long as you did it?
0: Yeah, it was actually a pretty good exercise. And there was a little hill, too, that I'd run up quite often to get the flag seen and come back down. So yeah, it was uh, kind of pretty healthy, yeah.
1: Well, I've taken notice of you, Bob Marshall. How can people help you in your run for office?
0: Well, they can, you know, the money, it's horrible to say, but money, money, money fuels and, you know, political campaigns and volunteers. And to do either, if you go to uh, wwwbob dot and it's the number four, bob4colorado.com, um, it'll have on there what I'm doing and how you can help. Uh Just as an aside, we were trying to get also Bob4Colorado spelled out, but some Chinese gambling site has it, so... Oh, no. Yeah, so they're probably just sitting on it waiting for someone to pay them money, so who knows?
1: No, I like the number four. four, Bob4Colorado. Yeah. It's one of my favorite numbers. I think you're going to win. What do you expect from the January 6th committee? I hope people pay attention. I sure do admire Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, don't you?
0: Well, especially Liz Cheney, uh, yeah, yeah, because you Kissinger's really good, too, but you know Cheney comes from the entire establishment. So for her to you know go after him, you know, that's that's really <laughs> yeah yeah, that's turning, yeah you know, putting your principles and integrity over you know your whole family history of being with the Republican Party,
1: right. But sometimes you have to make that bold step. I do admire Liz Cheney. She went to my alma mater, Colorado College. We need to talk about the sad subject of the school shoot, shooting, Uvalde. Before that, the white supremacist shooting in Buffalo. Since then, Tulsa, Iowa, it's ridiculous. Um, you're a guy who was the captain of the shooting team in the Marines. What is the proper role of guns in our society right now, can't we get rid of these assault weapons? Doesn't America have to follow Colorado's system a little closer?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, the one big thing, my opponents want to get rid of every gun law even Colorado has. Uh, the magazine capacity restrictions and the red flag law, and both of those could have helped at the margins in Texas. You know, Texas has even gone farther in loosening all their laws in the last few years. Not even You don't even have to have any training or anything to get a concealed carry permit. Um, you know, some of our laws are just really kind of <laughs> not well thought out. If you want to have a well-regulated militia, anyone can show up, get a gun, like the one individual did in what Oklahoma is. You know, right? Got, got Buy his an
1: AR-15 in the afternoon, shoot up uh, the doctor who did your back surgery in the afternoon. It, it's just tragic. It's terrible, and I care about it because of my kids. I have children. You're a dad. I brought it up to you in the pre-interview because I'm thinking about it for my Colorado Sun column. I always wanted to have kids, and I do, but I found myself saying in the wake of you all, Day, thank God I don't have kids in elementary school right now. I wouldn't want them to have to think about it, talk about it, and I don't have grandkids that age. But what a selfish bastard I am because other people have kids. Other people have grandkids, and God willing, maybe I will, or do I even want that anxiety? I mean, the world, you can't get formula, you got COVID, you got Ukraine, democracy on the precipice. You're a dad. Should we keep having kids?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm never a pessimist. Everyone says, you know, in the 80s, I had friends from college that said, oh, the world's so bad, I, you know, we can't even bring a kid in here. It'd be irresponsible. It's like, well, do you really understand history? You know, World War II, the Black Plague, the Civil War. Yeah, you know, we're not there. <laughs> it's not that bad. And, it, you know, if you work at it, it won't get that bad. Um uh, you know, so again, if you just lie over and suck your thumb, yeah, the worst case scenario will happen, but the worst case scenario doesn't have to happen.
1: If people stand up and take action like you, stood up, joined to fight for our country, you went over to Ukraine recently at some risk to yourself, Kiev, northern parts of Kiev, and now to protest against Trumpism, you got sucker punched, but it didn't stop your activism, and now... You are running for public office. I admire you. That's why you're on this podcast. You stand up for what you believe in, and I think you believe in America.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of uh, an old fashioned, misty eyed guy about America. So, yeah, anytime it has a stain on it, it's personally hurtful um, and something you ought to work at. So, I understand all the bad things America does, but, you know, when you or has done, I'm pretty well versed in history more than most, even on those kind of issues. But when you add up the plus column and the negative column of what this country is about, you have to say the pluses are really a lot more, and they can only get more if we work at it. That's
1: right. It takes us to keep doing the things we're doing it's like tiger woods was number one in golf for so long we just took it for granted but when you're number one you have to keep working at it you have to keep doing the things that make you number one like the rule of law freedom of the press separation of church and state just some basic things that we know work and bigotry doesn't work and being a welcoming society that works better You are welcome to come back to Craig's Lawyers Lounge. I had a good time. I hope you did too.
0: Oh, yeah. This was very fun for me. All right, Bob Marshall.
1: Good luck in CD 43. Give out your website one more time.
0: Okay. It's uh, www.bob4, the number four, (laughs) Colorado.com.
1: And I understand he's still looking for a great campaign manager. We all are. I ran for office in 96. I'm still looking for that great campaign manager. They're tough to find, but I think you'll find one. Maybe this interview will help. Thank you, Bob Marshall. Well, thank you. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show. But more than that, he's my lawyer, my end of life planning lawyer. And I've got two dogs. What about you?
5: I have two dogs right now as well.
1: And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that.
5: So I will write pet trusts, which is, you can earmark Money to take care of your pets. Um, You know, a lot of people. You know, they've got their dogs and they love their dogs. But then, if somebody were to, you know, if you if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like, I grew up with dogs, and so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well
1: i like working with you and i think you are ahead of your time you have 15 different locations how cool is that
5: it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them
1: and nobody wants to drive from one part of metro denver to the other to meet with a lawyer you will come to them
5: yep and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to.
1: Tell us how people can get in touch with you.
5: My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule. You know, there's a book an appointment link on, this, on the website.
3: All
1: right, Michael Bailey. Thank you. Troubadour, you have done it again. Hi, Craig. On and On Our Way is just a wonderful song for this week, although a little mournful. You know how I know it's mournful?
6: Yes, I do. It's the violin. It's the
1: violin. Every time, the violin is the sign of, get a little sad. And we are still sad from Uvalde, other mass murders, this gun crap has to stop, or... Our society will stop. I have never seen you more more agitated than by the question I asked you this week. I said, David, do you think we should have children? I mean, as a society, if we were starting over, if we were telling our kids, our kids come to us, Dad, should I start a family? Is it a no-brainer like it used to be? And why did you get so mad when I asked, given all that's going on in the world, maybe we shouldn't have children?
6: Was I mad? Yeah, you got really mad. Adamant. No, not really mad. Adamant. Well, because I think it's, a, it's I mean, the question of difficulty in, 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 a, in a lifespan comes up. But to deny uh, the opportunity, both to the parents and to the new life you bring in, in, in light of what may happen— Right, the troubles, the the horrors that we're witnessing. It's not. Uh, it's not a fair question to me. Right,
1: but that's what you brought up. Statistics. It's relatively rare. Your kid's not going to die in an elementary school getting shot up, but they're going to have to worry about it. They're going to have to drill for it. It's on their mind. It diminishes their quality of life. Put that with COVID. Put it with climate change. Put it with inflation put it with the fact that you might not even have formula for your infant child don't you have to start calculating should I do this or not
6: well I mean I appreciate your your you're being impacted by all of these things Craig and and they're they're good to acknowledge but but in in but I don't see it as a I don't see it as a basis for making a decision whether to have children or not. To me, that is, it is one of the great joys of life. You have to put all that stuff aside. And let's keep in mind, as far as perspective goes, I don't think there's ever been a time when there hasn't been great risk, worry on the part of uh, parents in, in terms of what could happen to their children.
1: Right. And I agree, there's great joy. There's great love. But with love comes loss. And as you start calculating things, I've heard it said, God, please don't let me experience it. You never want to bury a child, right? Saddest thing imaginable.
6: Saddest thing imaginable.
1: So if you don't have children, you don't have to imagine that. And if it becomes a situation where a certain amount of children are going to be sacrificed or lost... And the numbers are not quite there. But, I mean, imagine that scenario. It's like a puppy. It's like a dog. We all love our dogs. We get used to the fact it's hard that they don't live forever. Ten years, maybe 15. Maybe you're lucky 18. That's it. But what if it was ten weeks? Would you really want to get that involved and then have it yanked away? I'm just saying that with great love comes great loss. And you told me as we were riding around Cherry Creek and you said, Craig, I don't know if this was original to you. It is better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all.
6: I, I don't know where that came from, but I know that- Shakespeare, my, I think. But it's probably Shakespeare. And I know my grandmother asked, she asked the question that you're asking with in terms of the love she had for my grandfather. They had a great love. And she told me after he had died, she told me, she said, I don't know if it was worth- um, having loved him as much as, as I did because of the way I feel now, the way I'm suffering now. And, and I remember that was basically what, what my mother, my mother's response to, to my grandmother, reminding her that she her life was enriched by my grandfather. You take the joy when it's there and you deal with the sadness when it comes.
1: They say, Lord Albert Tennyson, came up with that saying, it is better to have loved and lost. But who really knows? I didn't know Albert Tennyson, but I know you. And I know you've written a beautiful song. I ask you to give me a song. I tell you what the topic is, guns, gun violence, shooting up schools, and your song, On and On Her Way. Why was that selected? I think it's perfect. But how did you come up with it? What brought it to mind?
6: Um, Well, that's a song about loss. Someone dealing with the loss of a loved one, and in, in, in this case, uh, it was it was a song I wrote after my mom died. Um, but I, you know, as I thought about your your um, uh, your question of what would be an appropriate song, I thought, well, this could apply to a child too. And as I listened to it just before our our uh, our interview today, I thought, wow, what. <laughs> It would be a much a much greater sadness to to have it be um, you know, about your child.
1: Right, because your life has changed. You say that in the song, but to lose a child, yeah. how can you really be happy again? I guess people go on. I saw it in my own family, but it's just horrible to think about elementary school kids experiencing what happened in Uvalde. I, I don't want it to happen anymore. You have one of your beautiful daughters singing background. Can you tell us which one? Sarah Gunders. Sarah Gunders. Do you want her to have children someday?
6: Oh, of course. How many? She knows. She knows I do, but I don't pressure them. But uh, you know, when those conversations come, I'll I'll be uh, I'll be consistent with what I've just you know what what I've just said to you. It's like. Why would you not? Why would you not? Even in light of everything that we're experiencing now, why would you not? Why would you deny yourself the joy? It's the best thing. To me, I always wanted to be a father, you know? And uh, and actually, I, I became a father quite late in life, um, but that was m- more due to, to my wife, my first wife, and then ultimately meeting my second. Right. And and, and, and with, with Lisa, she was the, the woman I wanted to have children with.
1: I had a plan I always said better late than never. I did not have Ben till I was forty three, Sam, I was forty six. I planned it that way that by the time they were in trouble I'd be senile, it wouldn't matter. <laughs> it hasn't quite worked out that way, but I do think parenting is it's full of thrills and other things. <laughs> yeah. And anxiety. That's just the problem. You you worry about your kids all the time. It was JFK or maybe his father, I'm still researching this, who said that you become a hostage of fate when you become a parent Mm. because you're worried all the time. And there is an instinct on the part of fathers to protect our children, right? It's kind of a design. I think that's the way we're designed. And we have certain parts that encourage us to make babies too. Right.
6: Right. I I have friends. I have good friends who made the decision not to have children and I respect that, you know. Um I think for some people it's it's a it's it's the right decision in their life. I don't think everybody needs to have children to be fulfilled. Personally, I needed to have children to be fulfilled for my life to be complete. Come That's on. how I felt. You That's did how it I felt.
1: For the background singers.
6: <laughs> That's right. In fact, they've complained sometime that there's no compensation. <laughs>
1: But gosh, you can tell the way you guys harmonize that you are all related. Let's let everybody listen to On and On Her Way by our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Shabbat shalom, troubadour.
6: Shabbat shalom, Craig.
3: Low. Ain't been myself this much I do know. Can't see the sun, the clouds hanging low, and it's another day with you gone. You're like the bird that fell from the sky, leaving a hole where she You see there comes a time you need
1: voice and me from the first half of my career when I was Denver prosecutor or maybe you know me from my time on the radio and now on my podcast but my real job for several decades now has been to fight in the civil arena for victims of crimes I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades if your life has been damaged through the misconduct of others there's a great new Colorado law and it's for you it allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960 to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Let's expose the truth. Let's get you some justice. Let me be your voice for a confidential consultation. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig. Craig Silverman. A voice for victims. Hey, that was a heck of a show, if I say so myself. And I just did. Troubadour, thank you. On and on her way. I never met Dave Gunders' mother, but I wish I did. And I think I know her through the quality of her son. I like Bob Marshall. He's a lawyer who takes action. Running for office in CD43. stood up, went to Ukraine will call out Donald Trump, even if it puts him in danger. And it did. Same with John Morris. He called out the gun merchants, the people who push for big gun sales in America. He took them on after the Aurora Theater massacre, and Sandy Hook paid for it with his job. But he was on the right side, and he is unvowed. I hope he gets back into public office. Thanks for this public interview. I hope you enjoyed episode 99. Next week, Kyle Clark. The week after that, Joe O'Day. Thanks for being a part of it. Please take the time to give us a nice review. Five stars, please. On Apple, it's a bit of a process, but you can do it. A Nice comment goes a long way. May even make my day. I hope I made your day a little better. Thank you. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.